Welcome back to Inside Redemption. My name is Luke Simmons. I'm one of the pastors in Redemption and specifically at the Gateway Congregation. And I want to welcome you to what I think is a, a pretty special but very in-depth conversation that we want to bring to you today. And so uh, this is a conversation with myself and with Tyler Johnson, who's the lead pastor of Redemption Arizona, as well as with Seth Trout, who's one of the pastors at Redemption Gateway, but he's also part of the Redemption Arizona theology team. We have a team of some pastors from across congregations who help think through theological issues. And this conversation is specifically about uh, a document that we're releasing uh, called Redemption Church Racism and the Gospel. That's available uh, to you at redemptionaz.com slash gospel and race. You can find it there. We'll put a link to it in the description of this episode. But that's something that we just recently made available after our first live event, which was Inside Redemption Live, uh, about the gospel and race. A couple of conversations that we'll be releasing here uh hopefully very soon. But what this conversation is, is actually something we recorded last fall in preparation uh, for uh, making all of these things more available. And so what it is, is, is the three of us are talking really to leaders, to pastors and elders and lay leaders and people who are involved in shepherding and leading. And so you'll hear references to that throughout the conversation. But some of the feedback we got from those leaders was that this uh, information really working through uh, our convictions as it relates to uh, the gospel and race, it, w- it was helpful enough that we thought, you know what, let's just make this uh, more broadly available. So what we're doing in the conversation is walking through the 20 affirmations and denials that are part of this uh, part of this document. Uh, the affirmations are saying, these are the things we believe. These are the things we find important. The denials, these are things we reject. You'll notice as you, if you were to pay close attention to it, that some of the specific wording has actually changed just a little bit. And that's because some of the leaders who we've shared it with have helped make it better. So um, it's, uh, it's a long conversation, but I think it's worth it because it's such a complex conversation and it's such a complex issue. So many opportunities for misunderstanding. And so if you're willing to take the time, I think that you'll uh, be blessed as you really try to get kind of inside the heartbeat of our leaders as we talk about this. So, uh, without further ado, here's the conversation. Seth, Ty, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. It's a privilege. Yeah. So let's um, let's kind of begin here. Uh, we wrote an updated membership packet last year, um, and we kind of cleaned it up, reformatted it. Um, you know, the original membership packet we'd had, we wrote, gosh, nearly 10 years ago when we came together as Redemption. We said, you know what, we got to update some things. And so we added a few little pieces here and there. Why didn't we include something in that document on race or racism? I've oftentimes through this year gone, oh man, I wish we had done that. I feel like you could go through our membership and our doctrine and our convictions. You could read what we say about humanity. You could read what we say about the poor and oppressed. You could, and overlooked, right? There's a lot you could do to kind of piece together how we think about this issue, but we didn't address it directly. Any sense of why not? I think the biggest reason is that it wasn't on the forefront of our imagination when we were trying to rewrite it. I think a big part of it is our membership packet has more to do with like the theological contours that shape our ability to enter into and even have discussions, whereas uh, a lot of this issue ends up becoming a bit more particular and sociological, and you have to talk about church history more than 
you would even in the membership packet. And so in addition, writing a document on racism in a one-page form that we have our membership packet in kind of felt like you're trivializing it and you're not saying enough. You're saying enough to be vague. So so, so let, let me ask this just real directly because to me, as someone who was not writing the membership stuff, you know, I wasn't directly updating it, but I was part of that review process. If I'm honest, and I don't feel great about this, but it didn't really occur to me. I didn't think, oh, we should do something on racism. Ah, we can't fit it on one page. Let's not. It just never crossed my mind, which I think is even indicative of kind of where, you know, how we're trying to grow on this issue is that for some people, they probably would have, of course, wanted to include that. I didn't think to include it. Did you, Seth, as you kind of, is that something you thought about doing and just decided not to, or did it not really kind of come up a lot in your mind as much? I mean, honestly, the things that we did include in it add, like the things on transgender issues were, I thought, needing to clarify things that we hadn't yet clarified in short form. And so, yeah, the racism thing didn't come up. I guess it was one of those things I assumed that we're kind of on the same page about it. And yeah, like we didn't need to include two plus two equals four. So I don't want to overly simplify that, but it kind of seemed like, like you said, our statements on the, the poor, on the overlooked, on Christ and culture, it seemed like it kind of pieced together yeah, just fine. And at least it wasn't, like I feel like the sexuality issues were more pressing yeah. in terms of the motivating the update the updated version and that probably even just indicative of of your and my context here at gateway which Mm -hmm. not everyone across redemption would probably feel that same convergency so um anything you'd add ty yeah i think that what you just said is an important thing for the leaders to understand is when we begin to draft um redemption church racism and the gospel that we're about to go through one of the questions that got brought up is the question you just asked of why wasn't this put in to the membership material and context because of proximity of what you're proximate to determines what the biggest issues are you think we should address. So whatever the things and fears that concern you of what may be coming in culture, a la sexuality issues, transgenderism, um, the way in which the world seems to be going in those areas. Well, if you're in a more let's just say, quote, unquote, urban context or more diverse context, I think they're the ones going, well, this is very revealing that we didn't put it in the membership material, which is one of the things that is a very healthy opportunity for us in redemption is to go, who are we centering and what conversation? Why are we asking the questions that we're asking right now? And specifically how that reveals to us in our current context what we're not seeing. And I think that's the power of diversity, yeah. even multi-congregationally, is you're forced to see things with a level of proximity you otherwise wouldn't see it. And so I do think, I, I would affirm, Luke, what you said and what Seth said, but this is an attempt for us to get better at these issues. Yeah. And I think the more we've walked through these past six months, um, the more at least I'm realizing, and I think many of us are realizing this is a bigger problem that we want to yeah. step into with prudence and under the Spirit's power um, that we haven't been as intentional with before. Yeah. And to be fair, it's not like we just wrote this at Gateway and it became the thing for redemption. I mean, people all across redemption had eyes on our membership packet. And to my recollection, nobody brought it up that we ought to do it. I think in hindsight, we probably wish we had uh, included something on there. Um, but 
that's, I think, what this document that we're going to talk about really kind of represents. I'd put it probably in the convictions section. So um, most of the folks, leaders might hopefully would be familiar with kind of how that membership packet works. So we have our kind of statement of faith, our what we believe. And for that, we require of members, hey, you have to affirm these things of what we believe. Then we have a section called convictions where we say, this is what we believe as, as church leadership. You don't necessarily have to agree with it to be a member here but you have to agree to not be divisive about it. Then we have open-handed issues where it's kind of like, hey, believe what you want as long as you don't believe a couple of aberrant things related to that. So this would fit in our conviction section. So um, my assumption is even as we go through this, there might be things that each individual leader who looks at this or individual people that they talk through it with might not agree with every part of this. Um, And that's okay. They don't have to agree with every part of it. Um, they do have to say, we recognize that this is what leadership is affirming and we agree to not be disruptive or divisive about it. So that's, I think, the context of where this document fits. So, And on that note, if it did make it in the membership packet, uh, probably the front page, the summary paragraph, would be very close to what we put in there. Yeah. Like it, not the long list of affirmations and denials. Most of those arose as answers to questions. Yeah. Uh, but the summary paragraph is more of the positive vision, the summary yeah. of what we're kind of saying, right? And, and thinking that the Bible explicitly speaks to in context of especially Western conservative evangelical church history. Yeah. Let me read that summary statement just since we're there. So here's what it says. God created one human race made in his image that contains a plurality of ethnicities designed to reflect the unity, equality, and distinctiveness within the Trinity. When humanity rebelled against God, the earliest consequences were division between God and humanity and between one another. Humanity is a fruit of their ethnocentrism and egocentrism, including many Christians in history, assigned different, quote, races, different degrees of humanity and dignity. Because God hates racial division and ethnic hostility, we grieve them and desire to help undo their harmful effects wherever they exist. In its fullness, the kingdom of God will not have these hostile divisions. But until we experience the fullness of that kingdom, Redemption Church aspires to be a foretaste of Christ's multi-ethnic kingdom at every level of membership and leadership. We rejoice that the gospel of Jesus provides the resources to not only heal humanity's division from God, but also from one another. So yeah, that's probably what would be, and maybe will be at some point in that membership packet. Um, But we have more. Uh, There's a prelude that kind of sets the table for this and then the the actual affirmations and denials. Before we dive into them, because I want to work through them one by one and uh, just make sure that anyone listening is able to understand what we're really saying, why it's there, and and how to use it effectively in shepherding people. Uh, First, though, how did this document come to be? Like, how did it happen? Right? One part of the membership document, but here it is now. Um, Seth, how did did this thing get started? Yeah, it really started with a lot of the national conversation ramping up and there were multiple um, videos being put out by churches we're connected to um, people were connected to saying different but similar things using uh, ambiguous language that I think depending on how you define terms people agree with disagree with and I was just getting um, question after question what do they mean by this what do they mean by that who do you agree with on this who do you agree with on that and I was kind of looking around for various statements that I felt like represented what I thought because I was getting pretty annoyed at talking about what other people were saying. Yeah. And I was really wanting to like 
look someone in the eye and say, I don't want to talk about what Billy said in yeah. New Hampshire. I want to talk about you and me. We're in the same church. We're brothers in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's talk about it. So it started with you saying, I just want to clarify what I think about this. Yeah. And then more people started seeing it, and that helped clarify and add and build out. And Yeah, so I started off just hearing people's questions and writing down kind of like affirmations, denials. Like, when you say this, do you mean that? I'm like, no, when I say this, I mean this. And when I say that, I mean that. And so that's kind of where it began. I just think I had initially like a list of like nine or ten things. And then I shared it with a couple other leaders at Gateway. We added a couple things to it. And then we uh, started retweaking it and kind of expanding it as we all were kind of saying, what are the points of confusion we're seeing within our congregation? And how can we clarify that and speak to it using the scriptures and church history? And so that's where we began, is trying to provide clarity and vision to people who are uh, a little bit resistant but I think generally mostly confused, kind of going, most of the folks talking about this don't agree with us on Jesus. <laughs> like out there in culture. Yeah, most of the people in the culture making a big deal about this do not believe in death and resurrection of Jesus. And there's like a, a, a lingering nervousness about that reality. Mm-hmm. And so trying to speak to this, especially through the lens of scriptures and how the gospel speaks to uh, racial reconciliation and racialization was the big motive. Yeah. And then it then it kind of expanded. Then then other folks at other redemption congregations uh, thought it might be helpful. And so then they started speaking into it, tweaking a word here and there, deleting whole sentences, adding whole sentences, uh, noticing gaps, adding in those things. And so what we have now is probably about 6% of my original first draft, and it's since become more of a... 6%? It's more than that maybe 16%. I don't know. But someone asked me if I wrote it and I was like, I feel like I'm more like the project manager than I have yeah. like the author. Um, yeah. You definitely constructed the spine. Yeah. And it got kind of built out. I mean, at this point, dozens of leaders across all 10 redemption congregations have contributed to it, spoken into it. And a handful of folks I really respect who are not in redemption yeah. trying to uh, add some weight to some of the ways where we don't have as much weight. Okay. Um, next question, since you did kind of construct the spine, what was behind your decision to frame it as affirmations and denials? Why, why that structure? I thought it was just really clear. The we affirm, we deny just felt like a really helpfully clarifying thing. And part of it was there were things that I was affirming that people assumed or people were inclined to assume uh, also inferred other things that I was not meaning to infer. And so, so because you said A, you must also think B, and you want to go, no, I can think A without thinking B. Yeah, yeah, a lot of those times. And partly because probably in predominant cultural conversations, A and B always go together. And there are a lot of times when I may want to put A and B together, but in a lot of these documents, I wanted to just say A without simultaneously affirming B. Yeah. And so I kind of lament the overly it just feels a little dogmatic definitive and even some of the affirmations maybe didn't need a denial but for aesthetic sake i needed to put a denial on there because i wasn't going to have one of them not have a denial uh, but i end up thinking that the form ends up serving clarity even if it there's other things that it's not as helpful with yeah it's easier to talk about let's talk about point one affirmation denial because if you have like a seven paragraph essay 
it's hard to break apart discussions. And so I felt like the the individual points, the affirmations, and denials helped conversations more than maybe long form, just a three page essay on it. Yeah. When even the way you just said that, it helped conversations is I think important, right? There may be a time where this just gets released and is publicly available, but up to this point, and we think the way that it's mostly going to be helpful going forward is in the context of conversations. Yeah, hey, I, take I've, a look at this, read this, let's talk about it, let's discuss this, let's answer questions. Yeah, I for a long time really appreciated that when someone can send me a question, like whether it's about Calvinism or complementarianism or fill-in-the-blank-ism, that I can send them an article to read and then we can go to lunch because then I feel like you're not it makes a lunch more productive because yeah. you can interact over substance yeah and I think it can really yeah. facilitate more meaningful conversations that way yeah so Ty for you you pretty you pretty early I mean Seth shared one of his initial drafts with you and pretty early you kind of felt like hey this would be helpful um, what is it that made you feel like this would serve us well as redemption yeah, I mean, I I think it was because of, I'll put it in two categories, both the confusion and the critique that was coming out of um, people hearing things we were saying, specifically things I was saying, they were confused or they were critical to it. But those were all located somewhere, and I think this is a very important thing for us to understand in redemption as leaders of all kinds is this came out of a location in which many people who aren't as proximate may say they haven't experienced racism the way people of color were, are struggling and confused by the conversation. So even when Seth said before that what came about um, one of the levels of confusion was people saying, gosh, it feels like in culture where people are speaking about this, these are people who don't believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's true when you hear it in secular culture. It's not true, say, for instance, when you get into the historic black church. Sure. They yeah. speak about it absolutely, unquestionably from the premise and propelled from the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. So the people, let's say at Redemption Gateway or Redemption Gilbert or maybe Arcadia or different parts, you know, maybe mm -hmm. even Flagstaff, whatever— that feel in a workplace that they're being forced to say, I am by definition a racist— they're going, these people don't believe in Jesus. They yeah. don't understand it. They're trying to answer a problem in with a solution that's not a solution at all yeah. um, and doesn't get to the heart of it. I think that's very important. But in my when I saw the document, I immediately went, this is helpful. And a lot of it was because many of our leaders and pastors were exhausted trying to answer the same questions hundreds of times yeah. and saying this would just be a great document to create clarity to those who are asking the questions and create some space for the leaders that are there function in a way very much like Seth just said of when somebody asks a question, you send them an article and then go, now I'll meet with you. Yeah. And we, you know, we've begun to experiment with this document, uh, many of us in different ways like that, handing it to somebody, walking through it. And I do believe it's created clarity, not always agreement, but clarity. Yeah. Well, and, and even just what you just said reveals, you know, a lot of times people will inquire about what we're doing at Redemption and they mean a lot of things by that. But when they start asking about multi-congregational church and how do you restructure a lot of those calls and emails end up coming to me and I kind of help explain that stuff. And one of the things that I explain is one of the things that makes you 
that makes redemption different from most multi-site things is the diversity, the diversity of different size congregations, different contexts. And one of the things I often say is that one of the best parts about redemption is its diversity. And one of the most complicated parts is its diversity. And I think it's really challenging. You know, if you're at a more diverse congregation, you sort of assume, well, all of redemption is really diverse like this. If you're at a more, uh, homogenous congregation you kind of go well all of redemptions like this and even when we started i went back and i actually found a video from about 10 years ago when redemption was forming where tyler you and justin anderson were talking about this value of diversity and at that point it really was kind of an aspirational value and now it's much more of a reality it could be even more of a reality than it is now but it's way more of a reality than it was 10 years ago and that that complexity means that this document, even as we talk about it, will be, like I said, more helpful for some. There'll probably be some people who go, why did this even have to be written? Like, this doesn't feel controversial to me. And in other contexts, there's stuff in here that is just wildly uh, confusing, uh, controversial, etc. And so it is one of the challenges to try to shepherd a diverse family of congregations. And I would say you could even add one. I mean, there you said to some, it's not controversial at all. To others, it's wildly controversial. On the other side of not controversial at all, there's a whole group of people inside redemption that would say this statement is not nearly strong enough. It's too tepid. Yeah, it's too tepid. Yeah. Yeah. So thus the challenge. But we are where we are at this point in, in the process. And so let's talk more about the document itself can I say something just before sure. we get to the document? Yeah. I think one thing for us as leaders to understand is that the church being a city on a hill, the way Jesus said it, salt and light, is the world that we live in. And let's just take our context in the United States and in the state of Arizona is a diverse, pluralistic context. Mm. So it's got people of all types and all stripes struggling to figure out how do we do life together inside the greater metro metropolitan Phoenix area, inside Arizona, inside the United States. The church, as it's communicated in the New Testament, is meant to provide the example of mm. under the lordship of Christ, mm. who's the creator and sustainer of everything, who everything that we see and we can't see is made by and for Jesus, is our lens to get through this and the lane in which we walk to be a reconciled community. Mm. So this, there's many people, I think, in the United States that in efficiency principles of organization would say, well, you shouldn't do it like that. You should get more homogenous. And I think when we are aspiring to make a aspiring value of diversity an actual value, we have to see that as a commitment. So when we say this may end up in a membership level at a commitment, the commitment is driven biblically, or you could say theologically, to what the church really should be in the midst of it. So, Well, it's interesting because as I look around, I I see a a world uh, that is starving for diversity with very few resources to make it happen. And I see a church with tons of resources for it and not a ton of desire in some places. Some places That's there's huge statement. desire for it. Some places there's really not much. And, um, you know, I was talking to someone recently and I said, you know, here's here's kind of my dream is that um, my kids would someday be in college at a super, like, not even, well, maybe they're critical theory <laughs> Marxist, but like real, like unapologetic Marxist. I'd love them to be in a college. I don't necessarily want them to be at a college that <laughs> trumpets that, but they they probably will be. 
And I'm going, I, my dream is that they would be talking to somebody about diversity and about race. And I'd love it if they could say, you want to see how this should be? Come to my church. Come see it. Like we've, we're experiencing what you can only dream about. And man, I just, I'd love to see that. I don't feel like we're there. But that, even as we pursue this thing, this is not about trying to make some politically correct statement. It's not about trying to prove something. It's about saying the church can be a witness to the beauty of what the what only the gospel can do. And man, that's that's just so much of what I hope comes out of this this whole thing for us is redemption. And I just want to say this in that dream is that is God's dream. And it happens inside Christ. I was just a few minutes ago, opened my Bible to Galatians. And this is Galatians 3, 27 through 29. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the premise of this is as we, as many of us, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he says, this is a fairly famous verse that many have heard. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you read the whole New Testament, he isn't saying literally there isn't such thing as male and female. I think this passage very clearly is dealing with these couplets where there was division between them. So Jew and Mm -hmm. Greeks were divided. The dividing wall of hostility in Christ is broken. Slave and free were divided. The dividing wall of hostility is broken. Males and females were divided. Dividing walls of hostility broken. All are one in Christ. That you come to this place where you're in Christ, a true reconciled community of all types and stripes can be there only in Christ. Yeah. Amen. And it, it's that in Christ piece that I think separates even the discussion we're trying to have. Because the fear, again, context matters. One of the concerns is you see like the secular individualistic liberalism that's kind of become this totalitarian force that it's comply or die. And this, like you said, workplace mandates policies that there is this, this issue of racial reconciliation gets swept up into the leftist totalitarian narrative Mm -hmm. and ends up feeling like a lot of the same concerns that conservative political folks would have around religious liberty and so there's just a visceral resistance because this feels like that. And that is when this reconciliation is attempted at being accomplished apart from the resources of Jesus and a creational vision and a new creational vision and the work of the Spirit and accumulating this. And the struggle, even the text right before that you just read, is when Peter was eating with Gentiles, but then he withdraws and it's just spend time with Jews because it's probably more comfortable. It's probably more natural feeling. It's probably more socially beneficial. And Paul comes and puts him on blast. Well, and he doesn't put him on blast saying, Peter, you've broken the racism sin. Yeah. Or he says, you are not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. Yeah, you're not in step with the gospel. And he opposes him to his face in front of them all. And it's like this maintaining or reconstructing the wall of ethnic hostility is anti-gospel. But that tendency, I think Peter's tendency is all of our tendencies, that 
when the temperature increases, we withdraw. And I think this is part of what we're trying to hopefully do is to not allow one another to withdraw when the temperature goes up, but to be paused to one another yeah. and say, live in line with the step with the, with the gospel yeah. and to press into this. Yeah. So I want to get jamming on this document itself. Uh, just a couple things, um, and I'm assuming as you're listening to this that uh, you have a copy of this in front of you. It will be a challenging conversation somewhat to keep up with if you don't kind of have one or if you're not pretty familiar with it. Just a couple things I want to highlight from the prelude. I don't want to read the whole prelude part on the front, um, but I want to highlight a few things. This is not an abstract issue. It affects real people. Uh, when we say all of life is all for Jesus, this is an issue that interacts with all of life. So that's important. Another thing is we're not attempting in this document to advocate for specific policies or solutions, especially public policy things. There, A lot of different people could see these issues the same way and want to enact different sort of uh, programs or processes for for social change. Uh, the other thing is this is intentionally a written right now in a more technical academic way we didn't we intentionally didn't want to kind of dumb it down uh, we wanted to give it um, the the respect it deserves and the complexity that it, I think it requires so that's a bit of a, a prelude so l let's move to the first section so the first section is called on our hope what I want to do is is read the first uh, I'll read these first statements and then uh, let you guys kind of jump in and uh, emphasize what you want. <laughs> I will say this too. One of the dangers here is we've worked really hard to have this say what we want it to say. <laughs> and so if we're going to elaborate on this, <laughs> we are going to, to some degree, run a risk of, you know, complexifying what we've tried to make clear. <laughs> so yeah, and I just acknowledge along, that that's along possible. those lines, uh, one of the reasons why there's so many eyes were on this is that a lot of people hear the same words and hear different things. Yeah. And so even on this podcast version, there's way more of a risk of being misunderstood because one person says the word race. Because we use the word race even in two different senses on the first page. Yeah, There's the one human race, and then there's the multiple races that we chopped up sociologically. And so right. there's a nervousness that I feel, if I'm yeah. just being honest, about talking long form about this, is that people's ears cause them to hear different things, even based on who they've previously interacted with most recently. Yeah, sure. And so... Hopefully the words on the page have at least been, you know, seen by people from multiple contexts. Yeah. Whereas and again, we're trying to go, here's some ideas on how to effectively use this as you shepherd and lead and, yeah. and help people. So, all right. So number one, uh, and number one feels hugely important, <laughs> which is maybe why you put it first. So we affirm that the only hope, the only ultimate hope for humanity is the gospel of our Lord Jesus, his sinless life, his substitutionary death his bodily resurrection, the coming of the kingdom in his sending of the spirit and the ultimate renewal of all things at his second coming. And everyone said, amen. <laughs> we deny secular humanism's assumption that humanity operating apart from God can bring about the full flourishing of society. And we further deny that paradise is ultimately achievable until Christ's return. This is important. Why is this first? What would you uh, help us understand as we walk people through this? A big idea here is that we live, and this even gets into point number two, is that the kingdom has come in the death and resurrection and the spirit, and it is not yet fully realized. And so any type of belief that we're going to hit a utopia before Jesus comes back is just foolish and unbiblical. And so there is a realism that the Bible gives us 
for this current cultural moment, that the Spirit is at work in God's people, and the curse of sin is very real, and there are strongholds all over our society. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a sobriety mm-hmm. when it comes to our engagement, that we should not be triumphalistic optimists as we go running headlong into engaging cultural renewal. And at the same time, we shouldn't be just totally pessimistic. Our work doesn't matter. Yeah. But oftentimes the spirit does bless our efforts. And oftentimes we get to participate in the death of Jesus when he doesn't bless our efforts like we want to. Yeah. I'll say one other thing of why this is so important. Many of the critiques or concerns that people have in this conversation is where the thinking on the topics that we're applying to current situations started from. Mm, So this is where a lot of the conversations about Marxism comes from. And Marxism is coming from an atheistic starting point. So people go, that's challenging. Anytime you're trying to answer complex real world challenges, the question of what is the first cause or people call it first principle for us to state, with the utmost clarity and emphasis that we believe the world began with the breath and voice of God Mm. and the world got disrupted in sin because of humanity's rebellion against God is the first cause and first principle to our understanding of everything Mm. in life and in the world. And that is really important is that our faith and what we believe is true truth, like ultimate truth is does not have a starting point in a current modern solution that human beings just come up with. It starts from exact from God yeah. and from our rebellion against him. And so that's where the idea of the ultimate hope for humanity, right? There might be lesser hopes, like you could make more money or you could have a higher standard of living or more education. You could put some hope in that. Or more liberty, like more in this liberty. conversation. Yeah, sure. But the ultimate hope uh, for humanity is the gospel. Um, I want to ask one more clarifier here. So on the denial, we deny secular humanism's assumption. You didn't mention we deny critical race theory's assumption or, um, or this group's assumption or that group's assumption. You, you made that kind of broad, and yet so I guess I'm I'm wondering why. Why didn't you list more specific people that we want to deny their assumptions about? Yeah, well, I see the heartbeat of secular worldviews or secular humanism as being this idea that humanity is separated from God. And we uh, recognize that secular humanism, kind of this... Uh, this God does not exist... Um, this uh, what's often called or described as the myth of progress, right? This belief that through technological means and through um, kind of kumbaya work together, we can make society all better through our partnership. And so secular humanism to me is like a broader umbrella that kind of represents like a humanistic, human-centered view of the cosmos yep. um, rather than a theistic one. The other one of the hard things about talking about critical race theory is there's not a critical race theory. Hmm. There are critical race theorists who say things. Like you wouldn't deny that theology, but I would deny some theologians, Hmm. and I would deny some of what some theologians say. Yeah. And so broad brush denying a theory or a critical theory is like broad brush denying a discipline like 
denying theology. Like there's a lot of theologians that I think are making the world a worse place. Mm-hmm. Just like there's a lot of critical theorists who I think maybe make it a worse place. Yeah. But dismissing all of those things all wholesale to me feels overly summative and a little bit dishonest. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks I've talked to personally who would like me to do that or us to do that uh, haven't interacted with actual critical race theorists. They've interacted with other people um, disparaging certain aspects of it. So someone even sent me a video of someone critiquing uh, critical race theory. And all of the critiques in that video I agreed with. But there's other things that different sociologists say that could be labeled critical theory Mm. that I might actually find as helpful. And so it's kind of like if you only quote the bad stuff that someone says, they're going to look real bad. Mm. So, so all of that gets us into the second, uh, the second piece and, and Seth referred to this already. So we, number two, we affirm that the already and not yet reality of the kingdom of God, the satanic reign of sin and death and the reign of God in Christ exists simultaneously and in hostility to our present moment in world history. This mixed bag reality of our present moment in biblical history gives us the dual identity of listeners because of the doctrine of common grace and prophets because of the doctrine of antithesis as we engage with our pluralistic and secular world. We deny naturalistic worldviews that minimize the role of God and Satan in society. And Tyler, maybe you could just um, give us give us a you know brief little snapshot of common grace and antithesis. Those might be phrases that you know folks would be helped to have a little bit more understanding of. So I was just talking to my son about this the other day over a smoothie. My son, this is my second son. He's thirteen years old, and to make it very simple is. I was saying to him, what did God make? And he looks at me, everything. And how did he make it? What's the phrase that's used after every time he makes it? It's good. So everything in creation, not just the trees, but all of the things that come out of creation, there's these very simple statements in the Bible, like the builder of all things, the maker of all things is God. He's created the things that we see and the things that we can't see. And it's good. So sin... St. Augustine said, is like a parasite, that sin can never exist on its own, but it attaches itself to something. And so it attached to the good thing. So that is where the language here comes in, is in Reformed traditions, some Reformed traditions, the two words are affirmation and antithesis, that there's nothing in all of creation that you can look at, and there's not something in it that you can affirm because of the goodness so another way to think of this is yeah, you, all... You might like to have a Christian doctor because they're nice to interact with, but the assumption is not that a Christian doctor is better at medicine than a non-Christian True. doctor. So even evil, at every point, every evil is good evil. That sounds weird, but meaning... Hold on. Every evil now, is good evil. It's a terrible <laughs> I way to I cannot actually, wait to take that one out of context later. <laughs> I'm glad you... But, Let me tweet that. Tyler here, Johnson. Here's the point, is evil cannot exist on its own. Mm. So it attaches to something good. Mm. That's the point theologically. So there's nothing... If you take some of the most heinous things in the world, sex trafficking, heinous, horrific, sickening, evil attaches itself to God's good gift of sexuality and sex mm. and distorts it. That's what sin does. 
So it's me- the, the phrase good evil is meant to be provocative. Like sure. that doesn't make any sense, but it's try to ch- communicate. Evil doesn't exist on its own. Mm. Even Satan himself, who we mentioned in this, is a creation of God. Yeah. He's an angel made of God. So that's where and there's nothing in the world that you can't affirm. At the same time, there's nothing in the world that has not been tainted by sin. That's the antithesis idea, is that what that means is there's a counter-reality. It's a critique is the word, ultimately, that you critique something. So, And this is very important for us to understand, to make sense of a world that's complex and getting more complex, is to understand common grace is this reality that God gives us good things in many ways that aren't what we would understand as explicitly Christian, but they are explicitly Christian because the giver of all good things is God, and he gives it to us in ways and in forms at times that don't just fall under what we would understand as the reign of the church or the control of the church specifically. Great. Let's move to number three. Number three says, we affirm that all people will stand before God to be judged. The oppressed, oppressor, rich, poor, male, female, all ethnicities, and the need for everyone is to be found righteous in God's sight, which is only possible through Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We deny that apart from faith in Jesus, any person is safe from God's wrath. So I only have one question here, and then I think we can move to the next section is um, why did we include those descriptors of the oppressed, oppressor, rich, poor, male, female, all ethnicities? Why didn't we just say, we affirm that all people stand before God to be judged and leave it there? Why include those descriptors? Why do we do that? Part of the reason is because in current sociological world, there's this kind of view that if you check the oppressed box or the poor box in any kind of way, there's an off-the-hookness it comes with that. And I think that suffering and sin is sort of like a jacuzzi in bacteria. Like I think there is a reality that suffering makes it easier to sin. I think when I'm suffering, I'm more likely to sin. And so there's empathy without excuse. Yeah. And I want us as a church to have empathy for why some people may be born into situations or exist in situations that make it harder to thrive without that serving as an excuse for sin. And so I think that's kind of what we're trying to get out there, is that all people um, are cut off at the knees before God, and apart from Jesus' blood, there's no hope. And it's not like some people, whether you're rich or poor, or poor or oppressed or not, uh, have a leg up on God's judgment. Hmm. That's not true Yeah, um, in any direction. Yeah, great. All right, so then the next section is on our humanity, and uh, we have a whole doctrinal statement about humanity, um, but this is uh, especially related to this conversation around race. So number four says, we affirm that all of humanity is made in the image of God, that all humans share a common ancestry in Adam, and that those in Christ are being made into one new mankind. We deny that any ethnicity has more or less value or dignity than any other ethnicity. I'll just say here at the outset, I, I so appreciate this statement because I think one of the things that um, has distinguished some of um, what is kind of commonly thought of as the civil rights movement versus the movement today is the civil rights movement seemed to have much more of an emphasis on the image of God, right? You think of the kind of classic uh, signs, I am a man, 
Um, which isn't to say that everyone involved in movements today is denying that, but it's less emphasized, it seems. And it does feel like this is an important place to start, that we're made in the image of God, um, every ethnicity equal in value, dignity uh, than any others. Anything you'd add there? Either of you? Great. That's a big deal. <laughs> I don't want to take it for granted, but it is really um it's yeah, and it seems non-controversial right now to us, but this would have been very controversial very recently in history, and also in certain circles it still may be. Yeah. I will say this. The denial that any ethnicity has more or less value or dignity than any other eth- ethnicity, that denial is the affirmation above by which we then have to evaluate our current context and say, is that what's happening first and foremost in the church and then in society? Yeah. So we might say there's no ethnicity that has more value or dignity, but we might have times where we treat certain values, certain ethnicities with greater value or dignity. Maybe not intentionally, maybe intentionally, maybe not, right? That might be so, so that's something to consider, right? You can always say you believe something, how you live is a different thing. And even when we think about what are our potential sins, what are our potential sins of omission, what are our potential blind spots, that might be one. Yes. Probably is one. Uh, number five, we affirm that God established a plurality of ethnicities, tribes, tongues, and nations designed to reflect the diversity in union within the Godhead, the body of Christ, the church, and which will continue to do so in the new creation. We deny that ignoring the design diversity within humanity is helpful or good. So there are some people who would kind of, this would be kind of related to colorblindness. They would say, hey, why don't we just be colorblind? And to the degree that people would mean by that, that um, your ethnicity shouldn't dictate that you have more or less value, we'd go, okay, that may, yeah, colorblind in that sense is good. Uh, colorblind in the sense of, I don't see color. I don't acknowledge the differences. Um, doesn't feel like that reflects the way God made us. Yes, I think that is the best of the colorblind statements or movements, if you will, is an affirmation that we're all made in the image of God. I just see a human being. The downside of that is that isn't what's happened and it isn't what God has done and or designed. And so along with ethnicity, I'll just enter this and we may come back to it later is culture. And so that's where a lot of this gets way beyond just the skin color of somebody, but what comes out of the tribes, tongues, nations, ethnicities is cultures that are distinct and unique compared to others. And that's by God's design. Yeah. I would even add to that. There's this reality. We talk about trying to be a foretaste as a church of the, that was one of our, uh, points in the summary statement, trying to be a foretaste of that multi-ethnic kingdom of God. In Revelation 21, 26, it talks about how the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the new heavens and new earth. And I think that that's part of what John's getting at there, is that there's these varieties of cultural goods that are going to eternally exist with us. And so there's it's not just like cultures right now are a thing and they'll eventually fade away. But it's part of the creation mandate, the cultural mandate that humans develop cultures, and the and the the variety of flavors and angles that those are bubbling up yeah. is something we'll celebrate in the new creation. Hmm. And 
the inability to celebrate those things now is a failure to be foretaste. Yeah. I, I want to add, ask one more question here. So we're not saying in number five, we don't say we affirm that God established a plurality of races. We say God established a plurality of ethnicities, tribes, tongues, and nations. I know we could probably do a whole long conversation on the history of the th- sociological dynamics around race, but why why are we not saying that God established plurality of races? Instead, we're saying a plurality of, of ethnicities, tribes, tongues, nations. So I would say we are saying that because that is in actuality what the Bible teaches, is that there's one human race in multiple ethnicities, tribes, tongues, and nations. And But the issue is we live in a context where the construct of races has come about, and this gets into all of what you said that we don't have time for, the development of it. So when you situate yourself at a time where people are using the terminology of race and you have to communicate in a reality that when I go to the 2020 census, it asks me what race I am. And I'm giving the categorization of maybe Caucasian, but white, black, Hispanic. There are these big categories that have been constructed. And we have to, because we're trying to be a church in this time, work from that. But we're working from the reality that we're one human race and multiple ethnicities. Yeah. But, so we're not, we're not saying, oh, if you're going to talk in race, la, 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 fingers in my ear, I ignore you because the Bible doesn't talk like that. We're willing to engage people in the language that they're familiar with and using. But when we're saying, here's what we're about, we want to use the language of the Bible. Yes. Yeah, and that's why in the summary paragraph at the front end, it says there's one human race, but sinners created these, quote, races, yeah. assign them different levels of humanity and dignity. Uh, when God created ethnicities, he did not do so, assign them different levels of dignity humanity. Yeah, it was a It was a decidedly positive thing, whereas the construction of races creating social hierarchies was a decidedly negative thing. Yeah, And so that's one of the reasons why these con- conversations can be so confusing is... There's the one human race and there's multiple races and yeah. one of those is good and one of those is bad. And let me just say this. You're never dislocated from what society has done to us. So every one of us, Tyler Johnson and everybody else included, has been shaped by societal's construct of racial dynamics in my head. Right. And so when you can't just make a statement that races saying the terminology of races isn't biblical and therefore presume that when I affirm what I affirm of ethnicities, it just takes away. This is Paul's statement of don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. The work of transformation is work. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's go to number six. So we affirm that when one part of the body suffers, the whole suffers. Christians ought to weep with those who weep and lament with those who are oppressed. We deny that we must agree with one another in order to weep with one another. So um, Tyler, just to go kind of directly to you on this, it feels like this is a bit of what kicked off this conversation, at least in 2020, was um, a video that we released as Redemption. You were speaking on it, and it was specifically, you you used almost this exact language. I think you did use this exact language of when one part of the body suffers, uh, the whole body suffers, and how because of what had happened in that instance with Ahmaud Arbery and some of the other... um, killings that had happened there were parts of the redemption body suffering that other parts of the body didn't necessarily feel in the same way and yet what we're saying here is uh, we don't have to fully have had the same experiences we don't have to fully even see what someone is feeling the same way that they see it 
but when one part of the body suffers, we suffer with them. We care, we empathize, we love. That that's the first instinct um, is to move toward one another in love. So I, I, I didn't have a question there, but, <laughs> but what, anything you'd add there? Yeah, I think that's essential. And an essential starting point is when you get in proximity to somebody to feel their pain and weep with them. I do think that's necessary in order to actually weep with them. I think there's a difference when you're weeping with someone who weeps than just from a distance saying, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Those are not the same thing. And so when you get in proximity, I think God has set up maybe a process here, even that maybe I didn't follow in some of my communication is the best way to get somebody to weep is to bring them close to see the situation, to feel the situation. And that moment of the human to human experience disorients you enough to ask more questions, to try to get even to lean in more and try to get more proximate. And that's, I will say this, that's even the challenge with thinking a document that's two dimensional will do the work that only relationships can do. Yeah. Um, So let's go to the next section, which is on our sin. And this next page with our sin and our history is where it starts to probably get a little more tense. Uh, So far, I think there's a lot that people would go, yep, I see it that way. Yes, I affirm the Bible says it that way. Uh, These pages, even as we think about walking it through people, will probably be the places where we start in some cases to get a little, uh, I'm not sure, help me understand. So let's do that. So number seven, we affirm that prejudice directed against someone based on their ethnicity or skin color is sin born in the human heart. It is rooted in self-righteousness, ethnocentrism, violates God's command to love your neighbor, and is ultimately evil and demonic. We deny that racism can be sufficiently explained by secular sociological principles. So um, I read that and the affirmation, yep, totally get it, makes a lot of sense. Um, I could see people going, on the denial, help me understand that a little bit better. What would be attempts by secular sociological principles to kind of sufficiently explain racism? Yeah, we wanted to, on the our sin portion, recognize that trying to talk about society's issues, not in the context of humanity's rebellion from God and the ego of self-law, of autonomy from God, is ultimately uh, foolish that it was really rebellion born in the human heart that created sin and maintained sin. And it becomes um, social when more than one person does it. But that's the big idea there. And even the idea of sufficiently explained by secular social principles, it's kind of, you could talk to a chemist and they could explain to you headaches, right? And mm-hmm. they could talk about Tylenol. Sure. But why headaches exist matters and has to do with the destruction of creation by sin and so so even though a chemist might be able to tell you true things about why someone has migraines yeah uh, they can't explain to you why migraines exist in the first place and that is the disorientation of creation as humanity has separated from god so this one's a bit like number one so number one was saying our hope is ultimately in the gospel we don't think that approaches without god can provide hope this is also saying we believe that sin is comes from the scripture. We know what sin is because of that. We don't assume that the world has an approach to understanding sin that is deep enough. All right, so number eight. We affirm that sin is often unrecognized and unconscious. All people have blind spots. Those who follow Jesus ought to prayerfully and communally reflect on whether we harbor racial biases. 
we deny that all white people are by definition racist. So this one has some stuff that I want to really push into because I think as we shepherd people, there's some really key categories here. So the first one I'll, I'll have you explore, Tyler, is unrecognized and unconscious. I think a lot of us, when we think about sin and a lot of people, when they think about sin, really just think about the stuff that I know is wrong, that I know I shouldn't do, and I do it, and it's willful, and I did it, and I, you know, I was not supposed to do it, but I did it. That's what sin is. This is saying, no, sin's actually deeper, and uh, and there's more elements to it than just that. Yeah, the Bible speaks very consistently that sin is deceitful. So it speaks to that in Hebrews, and the conclusion is that's why we should meet together. And I would say this is very much why we should meet together in more diverse communities, because there are things when you get in proximity with people, you have real relationships where you say, I didn't even see that. I didn't even know that. Uh, The reality of outside eyes, even in business, is that outside eyes help you see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. But sin, by its nature, is deceptive and doesn't allow us to see things. So even when sin's spoken of from devil categories, the God of this age has blinded us in unbelief. So this blinding nature, um, the deceptive nature of sin, that's just true about sin, is that it, it functions in ways that we're not doing the things we should be doing at many points because we don't recognize that we're not doing them and we're not even conscious that we're not doing them. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where, especially as generally reformed people, evangelicals who believe that God hates sin as wrath burns against it. I think there should be a slowness in all of us to, with any sense of absoluteness, write off a category of sin that we struggle with. Like if I meet a guy and he's like, I do not struggle with lust. I think in my head, liar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Liar, ignorant, you know, yeah. or teach me your ways. <laughs> you know? Sure. If I, I do not struggle with love of money. It, I just, I think that especially, um, you see this with a lot of young men and men in general, like when, when they're uh, really being weighed down with the sin of pornography, they begin to feel like that's their only sin. Yep. And you end up being kind of callous to all your other areas of sin because that one sin can feel so shameful and like on you. And so I've experienced that as I work with folks that it's like, as soon as they go 30 days without looking at pornography, it's like this wave of awareness of all these other ways that they've been, marked by sin and in love with the world come flooding. And there's almost like this moment of disorientation. They're like, I thought that that was my thing. That 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 was my vice. And I would have never said I love money. I would have never said. And it's almost like, and especially when I talk to older men, it's as they follow Jesus more closely for a very long time. And externally, I would affirm they're increasing in holiness and increasing being controlled by the spirit, but their internal sense of their holiness goes down because they begin as they age with Jesus to see their sin more and more clearly. And to me, that's one of the differences between, you know, 
old folks who are aging like fine wine and becoming like these like sweet, softened saints yeah. versus people who just kind of age like old leather and kind of get hard and crusty yeah. is people who grow in their awareness of their the holiness of God, our sin over the course of our lifetime, we begin to see it. And so I feel like as a, as a person, I should be slow to say, I do not have any racial biases, period. Stop asking me if I have racial biases. I feel like that's just antithetical yeah. to a biblical view of the way that God over our lifetime helps us see ourselves more closely. Mm. And it ends up helping us fall in love with Jesus mm. and his work on the cross over time. And so there should just be a real slowness that I think we should all have of believing that we are just these neutral observers of people who don't carry with us biases mm. and assumptions and prejudices. And I hope that as Redemption Church and even just as Christians in the kingdom of God, that there would be a humility that makes us slow to write off a category of sin in our own hearts. Well, it feels like the gospel is what should make that possible, right? Because you enter into a relationship with Jesus by saying, I got nothing. Like my resume is empty other than it's filled with a bunch of sin. Um, what, what's been so sad for, for me is in shepherding folks through this is I feel like on most issues we bring up a potential sin or a potential blind spot and people pray, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Reveal if there's any uh, wicked way in me. On this issue, it feels like you bring it up, and it's the Pharisee of Luke 18 who goes, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. And I find a lot of people start bringing out their resume to me of all the ways that they've loved people different from them. And um, and I think some of what's so hard in this is that it feels like, and this is a lot of how the culture presents this to us, the only the only options are racist or not racist, which even to use your example of lust that you said earlier, it's interesting because maybe before Jesus brought up lust front and center, it was adultery or not adultery. And you could have a lot of people go, well, I haven't done adultery. And I think uh, Jesus goes, yeah, you haven't done adultery, but adultery starts in the heart and it looks like lust. Um, I wonder in this case if when people hear racism, they go, well, I'm not a racist because I have never done the, the really big things that racists do. And, and mostly what we're trying to say here is we have blind spots. There's, there's got to be some seedling of prejudice or bias or ignorance or just stuff we don't see that we don't recognize in our hearts. And that doesn't, it's not unforgivable and it's not beyond grace. And we ought to be open to being able to explore it. I think it's also worth kind of emphasizing here, even like the denial. We deny that all white people are by definition racist. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, well, that's because there's a whole school of thought that says all white people are, by definition, racist. And if you just kind of stare at your navel long enough, you'll find it. And or because of your position in society, you're by definition um, complicit or a part of it. And I do think that uh, a lot of us probably are who don't think we are. But I don't think it's fair to describe an entire category of person as, by definition, any type of sinner. And so I think there's a slowness there. Yeah, that because of that, because of that identity, you're inherently a sinner in it. That's that's not fair. Yeah, Ty? 
I think when we get to number nine, we'll begin to address maybe the whys. People are trying to get people to say all white people are by definition racist, which we deny. Let me make that very clear. But understanding the why behind that. But I do want to say something that we were just getting to. There's a word that's used oftentimes. Jesus uses it, the meek. The word's meekness will inherit the earth. Paul speaks about it in Colossians chapter 3 when he says the putting off and putting on, and he says put on meekness. And I think this is really important in every category, but certainly in this conversation, is that one of the best ways I've heard meekness illustrated is when you go into a boxing gym. Yeah, I love this. And in a boxing gym, when you walk in, there's two types of punching bags, maybe more, but certainly two. There's a power bag, that's the big, long cylinder that's really heavy. And when you hit a power bag, it just envelops the punch. But then there's a speed bag. And when you hit a speed bag, it bounces right back at you. Well, the definition or illustration of meekness would be a power bag. The opposite of meekness is a speed bag. So when this issue is being brought up, what I think, Luke, you were saying is oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes it feels more like a speed bag response Mm. than a take it like a power bag and go search me and know me, Lord. Um, try me and show me if there's any in this context of this one in number eight, any bias way in me. And the word bias, I think is really important because it really is favoritism Mm. that in you, is there a culture? Is there a reality that you favor? And this is where a lot of the conversation that's happening societally is to say there has been a culture in a way favored here, which makes a lot of sense in, in large part. Um, we're more diverse now than we've ever been as a nation and getting more so. Yeah. And when you get into that, and this is where I want to emphasize, really emphasize for us in the church, not just society, these phrases of we ought to prayerfully and communally reflect upon if we harbor these things, is that's the only way you ultimately get to the point of saying, do I, do I harbor racial bias? And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying, is don't forsake meeting together lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, and I and I have I have compassion for the person who feels defensive because it does feel like in the culture the worst thing you could do is be a racist. Yeah, I mean, someone is, could commit murder, and you're talking about whether it was racially motivated or not. Yeah, and it was like murder's pretty bad too. Right, I would so, argue. Yeah, so yeah. so race is like the worst thing. It's the most unforgivable thing. And if you even begin to deny that you have it, it's, aha, see, race, evidence of racism. And so it's this thing you can't get out of. And I, and I do think that without the gospel, our only hope is to kind of defend ourselves and justify ourselves. No, 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 wait, look, I'm not racist. Let me show you why I'm not racist. And, um, and I think that we have an opportunity as a gospel-shaped people to say, um, I've been freed from the ultimate accuser, Satan, because of Jesus, I've been given a new identity um, that isn't because my resume is good, but because of the resume of Jesus. And so now um, I can endure maybe the scorn and uh, where it where it is the unjust accusations from the world, while also asking the Lord to search my heart and reveal if there are blind spots, if there are sins, if there are biases, or if there are things. And then when there are, if there are, I can take that to the cross and ask the Lord to lead me and guide me, like like in so many other areas. I just feel like this is where um, our our speed bagness <laughs> reveals a lack of gospel rootedness. Um, well, yeah, it, it reveals our 
subconscious works righteousness legalism. Hmm. Let me prove to you why I'm justified. That is not the way of Jesus, right. where our justification is inherited because our Father gives it to us by virtue of the blood of Jesus. And so I find myself wanting to go to my resume all the time. Let me prove to you I'm not a sexist. Let me prove to you I'm not a sexist. Let me prove to you I'm not a racist. Let me prove to you. And that just reveals just the flinch that humans have to, the flinch that I have. I don't want to, yeah. I'd, I'd assume other humans have the flinch. I think the Bible teaches that. But the flinch that I have to go to my resume to justify myself yeah. is just like pharisaical works righteousness. Yeah. So Ty, you uh, mentioned number nine. Let's move to number nine. Uh, this is again in the section about on our sin. So we affirm that systemic sin or structural sin is present in society when sinful people create sinful laws and normalize sinful values. The legacy of those systems can often outlast and outlive them such that even if corrected, sinful and oppressive policies and values can and often do have negative ripple effects for generations. We deny that any category of sin can be merely understood in individualistic categories. So um, that's a that's a affirmation and a denial that's probably new to some people. Um, and yet, I think, and especially it's just, it's supercharged when you talk racism, systemic racism, structural racism. Notice in this, we're not even necessarily talking about systemic or structural racism explicitly. Obviously, that category of sin has structural and systemic implications. What are some non, take it out of the racism realm, and what are some examples of systemic sin or structural sin that that we would see? Distorted sex is obvious. So the porno- pornography industry at large, the sexualization of the vast majority of advertising, um, there's no, that little adage, sex sells, uh, is a, very clear, we are a hyper-sexualized um, culture in the United States, so much so that many parents would struggle walking around their children naked because the perception is everything sexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we don't want an aberration in sexuality. So we don't even know what it lo- means to be a human being without clothes on, without sexualizing the situation, and many would say that over-sexualization is what leads to things like sex trafficking, things like that. That is a very systemic sin. Yeah, it's pretty hard to repent individually of your own personal sexual sin, in part because of the structures and systems around you that continue to keep it in in front of you. So that's one example. What would what would another one be, Seth? I think another example, but but even then, even this, any example of a structural sin will somehow a little bit be connected to the structuralization of sexual sin, right? I was going to bring up abortion, but you can't talk about that out of the context of a hypersexualized society. Like those things are kind of connected. And so like the things kind of just get into the water and they're there. And so, so abortion is a, is a systemic structural sin because yeah, it's so for example, literally legal. Yeah, for example, it's, it's illegal. It's blessed. Um, some people consider it a cultural good. Uh, and if all abortion was made illegal tomorrow, you still have upwards of 70 million children gone, not contributing their gifts to society. And so there's a gap, a hole 
that will last for a very, very long time. Yeah. You still have ripple effects of the, uh, so I would talk like formal systemic sin, which is on the books. Uh, but the other thing in here it talks about sinful values. It's like informal structural sin, hmm. which is like, it may not even be uh, legal or may not even be a question of legality, but yeah. there's a value that hmm. is normalized. Yeah. So there's, it's not like, there's not a law that says it's, Sure. It is legal to look at a woman with lustful eyes, yeah. but it's just a value. That's just how it is. So as we talk about, again, as we talk about shepherding people, because I, I want, as a pastor, I want this to be a category of sin that we're thinking about all the time, not just related to race. So what are some ways that you are, and that you think we could help our people kind of understand this dynamic? Well, I think where it starts when we use the word structural sin, which is inherited is that's where our whole belief in sin starts. We have solidarity with Adam. So mm. one of the first questions any kid has is, why am I being held accountable for what he did? Mm. And you have to walk through with your children, listen, you are, and there's different ways the Christian traditions have understood that inheritance. We don't need to go into all those, but we all agree we inherited sin. We have solidarity with Adam. Yeah, we sin by nature and by choice. We sin by nature and by choice. So you go, you know, you can get into, you would have made that mistake, but but the category of structural sin is where it all begins. <laughs> it isn't just based, I don't become a sinner because I sin. I'm born a sinner. Yeah. I sin because I'm born into sin. Yeah. So that's a helpful way to understand systemic and structural sin. Any other, any other ways that, you know, as, again, as you pastor and shepherd people, anything that's been helpful? Yeah, well, I think the main one I come back to is sexual sin because it's easy. You cannot consider your teenage son's battle with pornography apart from considering smartphones, LTE, Wi-Fi, Pornhub, uh, Victoria's Secret ads in the mall, the driving by, you know, the... Victoria's the, Secret stores in the mall. Yeah, Victoria's Secret stores in the mall. You can't, you cannot even think about how do you help one person not struggle with that to sin apart from the social bombardment? And that's why we have classes here on how to set up your internet protection. Hmm. That's a new social reality that you might've had people who are sexual sinners 70 years ago, but until high speed internet pornography addiction wasn't the pandemic that it is now. And so helping us realize that the form in which our the form that our sin takes on and the way it lands is very much kind of uh, made possible by our social situation. Yeah. So if as we kind of uh, close this section and, and begin to move toward the next one, I think what we're trying to say in this sin section is that um, sin, any kind of sin, but racism type race related sin would be included, is deeper than we tend to think it's more subtle than we tend to think it's more pervasive than we tend to think and so we're not here in number nine saying and x is an example of structural racism and y is an example of systemic racism and like we're not trying to be specific there might be some things that you would think are evidence of systemic racism that someone else might not think is the case 
Um, what we're mostly trying to do here is to say, hey, this is a category of sin that this is possible. Like to think yeah. that this is impossible, that there could be and probably is systemic racism is um, is not realistic given the depth and complexity of sin and the way we see structural sin in so many other areas. Yeah, number nine on purpose doesn't mention race or ethnicity because we just want it to be a category of sin that we think about as we interact with all of our general areas of temptation. Like, and, and I think it's also important there that we recognize that there's really two sides of that systemic sin. There's like the formal laws and there's the informal values in that it really does begin with rebellious people normalizing cultures or normalizing immoral culture. Um, and it also begins with rebellious people institutionalizing formal laws or practices. So it, it is both sinful cultural values and cultural ideologies and formal culture, like institutional or legal practices. And so I, I, think, I think it's important to add to this conversation as well that systemic sin is not just on the books laws, this is sinful, but it's the accumulation of our values. We create cultural idols that we all worship together and that is also a form of systemic sin. One other thing I'd add is, and systemic sin is multi-layered. So we're speaking at a very cultural, societal lens, but it gets down to inside churches, inside families. So when we do marital counseling with somebody, we'll talk, hey, what are your communication styles? What are your conflict resolution styles? So it's an understanding that when a man comes in to a marriage and in his family, his mother and father fought like fighting, screaming, yelling, throwing stuff at each other. The propensity for him to inherit those tendencies is absolutely there. Sure. What you thought was there. Well, the reality is both for good and ill, systemic sin, which is negative, gets passed down through families. So you, as you age, you begin to go, wow, I'm way more like my parents than we thought we were. This is the challenge of understanding anything. But in this category, sin in just individualistic categories is we don't understand how things really are passed down, how human beings we really are formed by the social context and situations that we found ourselves in. So if we're in a wider culture that normalizes something, it isn't a surprise that we find things normal that women wear today that generations past would have thought not even a prostitute would wear those things. Now, I don't know. I'm not even making a value statement on that or not. It's just that your society shapes you. And what we have to be doing all the time is asking from the perspective of Jesus himself and the work that he did, is this unrighteous or is it righteous? But the the point I wanted to make there is it's multi-layered. It happens in families, Revelation, the beginning of the Revelation, the seven churches of Revelation state very specifically these churches had embraced things like the work of the Nicolaitans. We have to ask, does that mean every individual embraced the work of the Nicolaitans? Well, I would say probably not, but it was large enough that he said, your church is doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd go, so if someone said, well, do you believe in systemic greed? Well, of course. Do you believe in systemic sexual sin? Well, of course. But I'm, I'm just right now looking at the end of Romans 1. There's this long list of, of uh, sins. You know, is there systemic covetousness? Yeah, it's called marketing. <laughs> is there systemic uh, deceit? Yeah, it's everywhere. There's all kinds of lies about all sorts of things. Is there systemic gossip? 
It's called daytime TV. Is there systemic racism? Of course. Like there's, there's systemic of every kind of sin. There's structural of every kind of sin. Now we could have conversations about what exactly, where exactly is it located? uh, How exactly deep is it? How exactly would you root it out? Um, But it's like, if we go, well, do we as redemption church believe that there's systemic sin? Of course there is because there's systemic racism because of course there's all kinds of systemic sin. Of course there is. Now we're slow to assign exactly where it is and um, we want to use wisdom and discretion there, but um, we're, but that reality is the whole reason why Paul encourages us to practice church discipline is that sin is contagious. Hmm. Like it gets on us that we tend to sin like our neighbors and we're tempted like our neighbors. And that if one of us perpetuate like walks towards perpetually walks towards um, unrepentance, like we're called to discipline one another And this, like sin is contagious. Like some of the best parts about me are things that I'm just like my dad. And some of the worst things about me, are things that I'm just like my dad. Yeah. And and that's systemic sin too. One of the things I lament about this conversation is that for a lot of people, systemic racism is the only category of systemic evil they have, hmm. which I think is part of the reason that theological conservatives may be slow to accept the idea of systemic reality, systemic evil, is because secular sociologists only talk about systemic racism yeah, and in the culture, it's the only systemic sin anyone cares about, it seems like. Yeah. Like, I think we'd love to go, well, hey, you're championing that systemic racism is a real thing. Could you also champion that systemic sexual sin is a thing? Yeah. It's like, well, there's no interest in that. And so that that is what's so striking is, you know, this is a place where... Yeah, I want to talk about, like, how passiveness and, you know, hoarding and only going to church once a month, like, all these things are contagious social sins that I think are a problem. And, but so I, I want to say, kind of like you said earlier, like I empathize with people who are resistant to this because the only category that is legitimized in our cultural conversation is systemic racism, so-called. Yep. And especially people who tend to talk about systemic evil tend to have an over, like a really optimistic view of systems. Otherwise, like people who are big on institutions and big on government and big on, yet they're talking about systemic evil, but they're like other institutions are, uh, immune from the critical eye yeah. of how might this also be corrupt or problematic. Yeah. So all of that talk of systemic sin and structure and all that stuff really leads us into this next section, which is about our history. So number 10, we affirm that many white American Christians perpetuated, promoted, and profited from evil racist systems for centuries And as members of one body united across time and space, we lament and grieve the sins of those who have come before us in church history, whether sins of commission or omission. We deny that racism and slavery were invented in or only exist within America or evangelicalism. So this whole section, guys, is kind of an interesting one in that most of the sections before this, I could probably find some Bible verses that would pretty significantly back up everything that's there. This section gets a lot more into history, uh, sociology, some of that stuff, right? I don't have a verse here in this whole section that talks about white American Christians or there is anything there. So, um, so I guess I want to start maybe big picture and go, why was it important to include this? Even though it doesn't explicitly come out of the Bible. I mean, we're kind of Bible people. Why, why did we feel like we still had to have this here? 
I think a big part of it is acknowledging, uh, especially like we said in the beginning, we're giving undue proportion, proportionate attention to conservative evangelicalism, which is kind of like our house, our tribe, race women, especially reformed evangelicalism. And there's just this reality kind of going to the, as members united across time and space, there is a bound up with one another in that um, things that don't have Bible verses, right? And so when you talk about family of origin, my family of origin, the ways that I'm like my dad, the ways that I saw my dad sin, the ways I saw my dad image Jesus faithfully, uh, there is a, a reality that if my dad mistreats people bearing the name of Trout, and I have the opportunity to acknowledge the things that my father's done, I can, like, acknowledging that actually really perpetuates, or not perpetuates, but can um, promote meaningful relational connection where previously there might have been boundary. Maybe even healing. Yeah, and healing. And so I don't need a Bible verse for my dad was mean to you when he was your basketball coach. I can just see it, listen to it, call it what it is, and say, I'm sorry that happened to you. So that kind of like social, familial, bound up with one another, united across space and time, this is a family reality. And so especially like when I read books that like the fathers of my faith in particular, especially in the early Americas or even through some of the Great Awakenings, like George Whitfield, among others, who we read George Whitfield and hear about gospel-centered preaching and the hostile takeover of the heart and a lot of beautiful things. But then you read about how he, he perpetuated, he promoted, and personally profited, which that's a pretty great alliteration, I have to say, <laughs> from evil racist systems. Mm. And so there's even like turning points in world history, in American history, where there is like a will we or won't we maintain this? And people went to, I'm just going to pick on him because I want to introduce a bunch of names, went to him and he wrote a fresh new paper um, defending chattel slavery. And that, it's hard to say that kept slavery going for an additional 10 or additional 90 years, but it certainly per perpetuated mm. the existing evil. So his kind of bowing to the status quo um, created additional decades at least of suffering. And just like I would look at what, like my dad was mean to you when he was your basketball coach and while you're going through puberty, that added a lot of pain. Um, and that's a very small example. Sure. You know, which, you know, if my dad's listening to this, I'm sure he could think of a couple people that could deserve that apology. But even on a greater scale, like the, the father of, one of the fathers of American reformed thinking did that on a much larger, much more gross scale. And that happened really all over the place. And as he's one of my family, this is, he's mm. a brother in Christ. Yeah. He's not just an evil guy in history. And I don't want to even paint him with an all red evil brush because he's a, he's a complex multifaceted human. And mm. so all these people, I think they're family. They're my body of Christ. They're and, and so to, to kind of not mention that or ignore that is in a sense to just not be historically honest. Yeah. yeah even folks who are resistant to some of this discussion uh, can read number 10. And if they've done kind of any historical work, just say, that's just 
inarguably true. Ty? I would just say this shortly, but I think it's very important, is that our faith is a historic faith. It's not just something that was dictated in the heavens, dropped on a rock, and given to us. So all the genealogies in the Bible are trying to tell you history really matters. Yeah. Yes, for the fulfillment of prophecy that many people may say, but the dynamics of the kings, the reality of the historical context Jesus came in, and that God chose to enter into history, mm-hmm. this is all we got. So sure. history is biblical just in and of itself. That's why a lot of people will say history is his story. Yeah. And then the question of the church is how do we faithfully witness to the gospel in this culture? So this idea of the church sitting between the gospel, which is real historical events, a real Jesus who lived a, was born, lived a real life, died a real death, was resurrected from the dead in real history. That gospel is a historic gospel that the church sits in the midst of that and their current place in history. Yeah. So our understanding of how we got here actually is very biblical. Mm. It isn't just just sociological. It's very biblical to understand how we're going to faithfully represent this gospel given the historical de- development of the context we sit in today. Yeah, that's great. So um, in, in number 10, I, I want to spend time on this because I, I think as we shepherd people through this, I, this is one of these where I, I could see questions or confusions arising. In number 10 and in, um, I think then later in number 13, we specifically are singling out white American Christians. Um, as the denial says, we don't believe racism and slavery were invented in America. They weren't invented by white people and they don't exist only within America or evangelicalism. I mean, you go anywhere in the world, you're going to find racial prejudice. You're going to find people mistreating each other on the basis of race. You're going to find racism. So it's not a uniquely American thing. It's not a uniquely white thing, but we're focused here in this point, at least on white American Christians. So I think for, for a lot of us, it, it might even be helpful to just talk about the history of the term white, which um, feels real just normal to a lot of us, but but actually has a pretty interesting history. Yeah, it really does. And a big part of that is we grow up hearing about the race categories, white, black, you know, non-white, Hispanic, you know, Asian, other. And we, because we grew up with them kind of in the air, we kind of presume like they've always been there. Yeah. Um, but they're actually constructed terms like we said biblically speaking there's one human race from adam um, but sociologically speaking recent history speaking especially like in the 17th century 16th century the the categories of white and non-white really begin to emerge because if you wouldn't talk to someone who you would consider you know you maybe wouldn't use the term racist but someone who had was a uh, uh, perpetuating ethnic hostility right you have you know you well you're british and you're French, yeah. and and uh, well, you're Welsh, and so you're like a worse type of yeah. Islander, and oh, you're Dutch, so that you're therefore you're this. Uh, well, you're Irish, you know, you're you're Italian, you're the, you know, and and so even there was way more uh, like variety in terms of category, mm. and so that I would describe that as more like ethnic hostility, like different ethnicities or backgrounds. But then what ends up happening is you kind of have this consolidation of those different ethnicities into broader categories of race. And even when they were um, bringing folks in chattel slavery across, they found that if they mixed up people from different tribes, they wouldn't be able to communicate 
Mm. And so they were less rebellious. Mm. And so you had all these different African tribes swapped together. And once they got on the boat, they were just black. Mm. And so you have consolidation into white, consolidation into black. And that was done really explicitly to kind of psychologically justify that in the middle of the Enlightenment, when you have like the rise of the dignity of humanity, all men are created equal, pursuit of happiness, et cetera, et cetera, you had to kind of justify Mm. this. And that kind of, so we could call racialization or the creation of race and especially into white and non-white or white and black. So the categories themselves are, I would say, a product of evil human intention. Tyler, I don't know if you add more to that. The only thing I'd add to it isn't specifically related to the terminology of white, though the historical development, as Seth was getting at, is a very important and essential to this conversation. But the reality um, in which the dominant-subdominant culture dynamic gets at this um, specific idea of we're not saying this only happens in America, that the nature of sin, when it finds itself in a more dominant culture dynamic, is to try to, the way I find an illustration very helpful, is this old game called King of the Hill that kids played (laughs) forever ago, right? When the guy gets to the top of the hill, he's the only one of the bunch saying, hey, just relax. Everything's fine. We're totally good. And he's saying that because he's at the top of the hill. He's at the top, yeah. And in the end, we'll begin to push people down off the hill. That dynamic is inverse of the gospel. The gospel Mm. is how do I help these people get to the top of the hill, not how do I keep myself at the top. So this is a Philippians 2 dynamic. But sin, what's very important is to understand those who get much most often try to keep certainly enough most oftentimes way more than they can rather than trying to find who doesn't have a lot and how are we trying to get them there. So the considering the needs of others is more significant than your own. But that idea of dominant subdominant culture dynamics as it plays out in our history does find itself in the categories that were created like whiteness. So creating a category of white allowed the people at the top of the hill to maintain that power and keep other people down the hill. Interestingly, like, you know, Seth, you're, you're, uh, Mother's Jewish, right? So, which makes you officially Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people now would go, oh, Seth's white. And, you know, you don't think anything of it right now. Yeah, there are a lot of people who we now consider white. And even now, depending on who you talk to, Jews count as white or don't count as white. Especially when, like, Wonder Woman came out, Gal Gadot is Jewish. Mm. And some people said, oh, finally, a woman of color in a leading role. And a lot of people are like, eh, I don't think so. Mm. Slow, slow your roll there, which is reasonable. But like Italians and Jews and Irish people, uh, basically Italians and Irish are generally regarded as white, but they're like the last to get in, mm. in the Jews in certain contexts. I mean, if you talk to like real white supremacists, like confessional white supremacists, Jews still don't count. Uh, yeah. But so there is like a white passing category that like Jews can be, can pass as white, even though they're not actually white. Yeah. So there's that dynamic going on. Um, but I, I think it's even like there's been a huge misunderstanding about the term white or whiteness as a reality. Like there's, I think there's a lady, maybe it was like two years ago, she's speaking at a conference and she talked about how whiteness is evil. And people understood her to be saying all white people because of their skin 
are by definition racist and are therefore evil. Yeah, I mean, I'd guess that a lot of people listening, a lot of the people we would shepherd, if, if you got up on a Sunday and said whiteness is evil, yeah, that's people, exactly how they'd hear people it. They'd look say, down, wait, 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 are you saying I'm evil just because I'm white? Yeah, and, no, she, what, and so this is, again, why it's kind of anxiety-producing to communicate about this stuff is these terms are loaded, and depending yeah. on where you're sitting and where you're listening from. Uh, but what she's getting at is the category of whiteness, which was created to consolidate the European identities into a single group and by on purpose to exclude non-European identities. The fact that that happened and there's a long history still that is coming to bear, like that was evil. The creation of that st- structure and system and way of thinking. And, yeah, the yeah. creation of that structure and system and to the extent that it still informs people's view that non-white people are subfit for society. And it wasn't just black folks as well. There's also, like, this was a big deal when we first came here and there's Native Americans. Sure. You know, and describing them as savages. You know, you had to come up with a, they are not like us in order to justify the way we're going to treat them category. Yeah. And so what we're getting at in number 10 is really that um, white American Christians were not immune from these things. And, um, and, as it says here, perpetuated, promoted, and profited, not universally, right? It says many white American Christians, but that a lot of people benefited from it. And um, and I think the end part of that sentence is really key where it says uh, whether sins of commission or omission. So um, I think that's another category that a lot of us don't think about. We normally just think of sins being you, there was this rule that said, don't do this. You did it, right? You committed the sin, uh, Tyler, talk about what, what what sins of omission are and how it relates to this conversation. Yeah, and simple, I think I'm going to repeat what you just said. So commission is things that I'm committing, I'm actively doing. Omission is things I'm not doing that I should be doing. So when you go back to number 10 and it says, many white American Christians perpetuated, promoted, and profited, you may not promote and or intentionally profit, but you can perpetuate in silence. So this is the power of... Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter to the Birmingham jail, which if the listeners have not listened to that, I could not recommend that highly enough. Um, Many people, many Christians and non-Christians would say it's one of the greatest pieces of public theology ever done in American history. And he's speaking predominantly in that about omissionary sin, that there were people who were saying, this is where these terms that you may be familiar with or may not delay and deliberate. Like, let's just wait Let's make sure our pace is right and we get there. And the idea of you can be perpetuating these things in your silence by not actively addressing them um, as omissionary sin. Yeah. So we say on here um, that we lament and we grieve these sins. So I, as you used the example earlier of um, uh, Whitfield, I don't feel guilty for Whitfield's sins. They were his sins. They were not my sins. Um, I don't think I personally am guilty for his sins. I, when I stand before the Lord, as we said, everyone is going to do, I don't think the Lord is going to bring up George Whitfield's sins on that day of reckoning for me. At the same time, as part of this larger family of God in this historic cloud of witnesses, um, I lament it. I grieve it. You know, I didn't do that, but we did as the people of God. And that should grieve us. That should make us lament. And um, I think for us, as we think about shepherding our folks through this, is um, anytime we see sin in the church, 
uh, we don't have to necessarily feel guilty or responsible for it, but we should grieve it and lament it. And uh, maybe even here ask, are there ways where I'm maybe accidentally uh, through sins of omission, perpetuating this, um, not, you know, not making it stop in ways that I can. So that takes us really to number 11. And number 11 is uh, really talking about the flip side of this, that we affirm, here, here's what it says, we affirm and celebrate the vital role that many Christians played in combating and abolishing evils such as Southern Channel slavery and Jim Crow in the name of Jesus Christ. We deny that the legacy of conservative evangelicalism is monolithically racist and passive. So this is really saying, hey, while there are lots of things to lament and grieve from the past, there are also some things to celebrate. He's not an American, but what comes to mind when I read this is William Wilberforce, a follower of Jesus who fought really hard in British Parliament to help end the slave trade um, because of his Christian faith, informed by his Christian faith. Um, and so, yeah, I think we should affirm and celebrate that part as well. Yeah, and one of the things I just generally meant is that especially uh, in our secular moment, at least the way that our non-Christian neighbors talk about this, is it's white evangelical Christian is like a gigantic curse word. Maybe not even just our secular neighbors, sure. but even just those who kind of see the legitimate evils perpetuated by our family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there would be plenty of brothers and sisters in Christ yeah. who would not consider themselves white evangelicals and would cringe at that term. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so at the same time, it it's not monolithically racist and passive, even though I do think it's fair to say that historically speaking, it may be majorly racist and passive. Maybe not in the last handful of years, last 50 years, maybe so, if that feels very debatable to me. But especially in those early years when you're having a lot of pastors and theologians writing. So certainly not monolithically racist and passive. Uh, there's certain pockets of faithfulness the entire time. Yeah. You know, there's there's always this kind of faithful remnant thing going on. Uh, but I, I want us to be a place and a people who can lament the losses and celebrate the wins without feeling like doing either is throwing out the opposite. Yeah. Like I don't want to feel like lamenting the sins is denying the wins. Yeah. And I don't want to feel like affirming the wins is, you know, whitewashing the tombs. Yeah. So I think both of those, being able to do both those things is really important when I think about my family. Yeah. And it should motivate us uh, now to say, Hey, there is a, a good legacy that we can, try to pick back up and, and do our best to, to follow in that footstep. So let's go to number 12. So number 12 um, zooms out a bit here. So not necessarily the church, but talking about our nation, it says this, we affirm that our nation's political leaders and thus our society have historically on the basis of race, oppressed black, Hispanic, Native American, Middle Eastern, and Asian communities, and we lament and grieve the sins of our nation. We deny that white people cannot also be poor and or oppressed. Um, so it's interesting there. The, the first thing that comes to mind is I think about just shepherding uh, our people and a lot of people I know is there is this sense, I think that on, especially the kind of strongly progressive left, that there's a, a politically speaking, that there's a kind of hatred of America, an anti-American thing. Uh, you know, America was just founded on slavery, kind of 1619 project. And it's all just it's all just built on this total sin and it's all bad and we ought to just burn it down and revolt. And, um, and so I could imagine somebody maybe engaging with this, 
this point, number 12, and kind of feeling like maybe we're saying that. Um, we're not saying that. Um, but why aren't we, why aren't we saying that? Or, and maybe even this, why are we even talking about our nation, right? I get why we talk about our church, but why, why the nation also? Let me start with that question, the starting with your nation. So when Paul communicates the gospel through the first 11 chapters of Romans, and then there's this very famous verse that says, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. And in that section, he's talking about don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When we think about being conformed to the world, that's actually a current existing system that is operating. And yeah. so we'll see that as it comes, as we spoke about before, about the sexualization of the hypersexualization of our culture. We're aware of that with our kids. We protect our kids. We try to think about technology, or at least we teach those realities. But when it comes to these, uh, we may not think as overtly about how the world is conforming us in to its mold um, when it comes to these realities. So when you talk about your nation, you're not just having a moment now to say, I'm an expert in all that our political leaders did. It's trying to acknowledge what has happened and then how that actually is shaping and forming the church. So it's very necessary to go at those specifically. As it comes to America being all bad or all good, this goes back again, previous conversation of the rightful biblical perspective is evil always attaches itself to the good. Yeah. So I think it's very important to say the United States has an astonishingly great legacy in so many areas and has modeled so many things. But most of the time when you're in conversation with people, they separate it. So to be very simplistic, the left, as you said, the hyper left would begin to go, it's all bad. Or the right seems unwilling or unable to critique at any level what we've done other than maybe the opposite side, left or right. Yeah. But to say we have a very complex history like we do as individuals. So this is where Martin Luther even spoke about those who have been saved by God and their hearts have been changed. He said, we're simultaneously righteous and sinners. Yeah. So this plays out in the, the Christian faith all the time. So the fact that we say this, and then I'll just end with saying this, I think even very recently, one of the areas I've failed in is this resurrection lens to say there is goodness in these things. When you're speaking and trying to speak prophetically, I don't know if when you speak prophetically... And by um, prophetically, you don't mean predicting the future. You mean more like the Old Testament prophets calling you to obedience and faithfulness. Yeah, by calling out your sin, Yeah, specifically. So saying, hey, you're going the wrong way, go the right way. That's what I mean by prophetic. When you speak prophetically... You don't always go, hey, but you've also done some good things, right? <laughs> right? But it is important at times when, especially in a climate like we're in, for people to understand, I'm not saying what they're saying, that it's all bad. Yeah. I don't even, I can't even get there theologically to say it's all bad, but I don't want to, in saying it's bad, um, I don't want people to never be able to say it's bad because that's as equal, that's an equal and opposite error. Yeah. Well, and that brings me up to something that I think is worth saying in here, not in the document, but it's connected to a cultural dynamic that I see in redemption. So when I look at our redemption leadership, one of the things that I see is that we're very comfortable with self-critique. Um, and some of it coming from the scripture of judgment begins with the household of God. That's a significant part of it. But I think there's also just a sense of like humility says, you know what? 
I can, I'm not above critiquing myself. And so we're very comfortable with that. But culturally, people are not comfortable with that, right? The only time you experience a critique is from someone who's an enemy critiquing the thing that they're opposed to. And so I think there are times when even as leaders, we sometimes, it's not our intention, but I think people end up confused. They'll hear us critique ourselves or our tradition or even our country and they'll think, you know, the only people that I hear do that are the people that hate, <laughs> that hate the things you're critiquing. You must hate the things you're critiquing too. And, and I just want to go, no, 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 not, not at all. Um, but I think that's just a dynamic that I've had to be more aware of is that self-critique is not something that, that most people, just based on the media environment and just the way we are, most people aren't super comfortable with that. Yeah, and that whole idea of self-critique, you know, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And so it's a myth to think that like, if the Lord is disciplining or critiquing, that's because somehow rooted in hate or hostility. Yeah. But there's this, when God is disciplining me, confronting me on my sin, that's because he loves me. Sure. And so I think that it's biblical to say that the more we love something, the more meaningfully critical will be of it because there's like a, I have a vision for more and better. Sure. And I don't mean that's just kind of you become this like perfectionist, anal, can't get a win type person. Yeah. But there is a, the people I'm closest to are the ones I tend to have a vision for. Sure. And there's like a building up in some of that that I think is really important. And even this idea of like lamenting or grieving uh, the sins of our nation. I think it was like in 1863, Abraham Lincoln talked about confessing the sins of our nation that may be forgiven. And it's even interesting how so many people uh, trying to describe the founding of America as a Christian nation, or at least having a Christian conscience. And that the United States does have a lot of Christian uh, ingredients in its founding. And so again, that to me makes us even more it makes me feel even more in need of critiquing the United States that even though it is exceptional, the fact that it is so closely identified with the name Christ makes me want to say, yeah. yes, but it's not all good, mm. even if it is mostly good. Yeah. And so anything that kind of, and Paul even talks about this, like in first Corinthians five, like when someone is bearing the name of Christ, you give disproportionate attention to their unfaithfulness. Don't worry about those folks who are like, we are not Christians. Like, let them, like, we judge our, our own. Yeah. And so communist China is not like, are we a Christian nation? You know? Sure. Not that I know of, at least. <laughs> but, but, but the fact that so many Americans go, we're a Christian nation. We found it. It makes me even that much more willing to go like, sure. Well, that means that you get more magnifying glass from me. Yeah. Because when someone willfully associates with the name of Christ, yeah. I feel like a really responsibility to highlight the ways in which sure. we are both faithful and unfaithful witnesses to Christ. And and one of the things that bugs me about this whole reality, and this is just kind of a personal pet peeve of mine, is how people who are like recently realizing, like, did you know that America's founders had slaves? <laughs> it's like anyone who's like taken a class knows that. Like sure. Like, it's like this newly excited, like, they discovered it for the first time. And I don't know why that bothers me, but it just bothers <laughs> me. Like, like, there's this need to yeah. go and, yeah, uh, to, like, re, re-label. Yeah. And, 
before we, before we move on, I, I do want to hit on that denial in number 12, which is we deny that white people cannot also be poor and or oppressed. I think that's significant because um, w- there's multiple dynamics going on at play in our country in the oppression of people and the overlooking of people. Some of it might be racial. A lot of it also is just we tend to struggle to enjoy being around poor people. Uh, you know, we don't naturally, as people, apart from God, gravitate toward the poor. In Christ, we, we have to remember the poor. Um, we have to love the poor. We have to serve the poor. And I think that there are definitely plenty of underprivileged and poor white people who would go, well, holy smokes, I've been on the losing end of a lot of stuff too. I remember after 2016 reading that book, Hillbilly Elegy mm. by J.D. Vance, and realizing like um, there's a lot of difficulty and oppression and uh, you know a lot of structural and systemic sin that is allowed to kind of flourish in in a community like that um you know growing up in kind of you know i guess what you'd call kind of hillbilly you know southeast ohio west virginia that sounds like a lot of other kinds of oppression and things that that we hear about as well yeah i mean if you went and talked to my my great grandma whose dad was a coal miner in appalachia and her dad you know blew up in the mine and died in between the great war and the world war ii and told her she had white privilege, she would be really confused yeah. by what are you talking about? Because they, when they moved to Arizona, they said it was because they were hungry and they heard there was food. Like there's like a real, especially in that middle America, there's a lot of that. Yeah. And so I think it's important that we, even as we talk about these different categories of oppression, recognize that no theory is, uh, you know, able to explain every particular sure. situation and that even though like the origins of, of the category of white are rooted in oppression mm-hmm. and evil that is not therefore mean that in every particular situation uh, that has exp- explanatory power which yeah. is some of what we get to later even though it may have explanatory power in most mm. um, or many yeah it's really dangerous if you try to make that have explanatory power in, in all yeah and we will come back I want to talk more about that that phrase white privilege and and push into that in a little bit. Let's go to number 13 though. This is the last one on our history. It says this, we affirm that many white Christians have been indifferent or callous to the experience of non-white neighbors, including brothers and sisters in Christ and to the legacy of mistreatment and oppression in our history. We deny that every individual white Christian is directly complicit in this. So um, what I want to push on here and, and kind of push into, I'll direct this to you, Tyler is, you know, there's some words in here that I feel like we've used in some of our communication, right? We did a video uh, following Ahmaud Arbery's death where we talked about that too long we've been indifferent, um, that questions of, of being complicit um, and being kind of just okay with different things happening. Um, and so how, how do we, how do we see this, this indifference, this callousness, um, in history and maybe even now. Can, before you even jump in, can you explain to me what complicit means? Because I, I think I can look it up in a dictionary, and but mostly I hear it. The what the function of it is, it's you should feel bad. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I think when you talk about complicity, what? How does that? How does that word actually manifest in this conversation? Yeah, I'm sure it would depend upon the user and how they're using it. But in the dynamic of the word it's used, um, there's active complicity, 
like you're a complicit in a crime because you were the driver, right? You're very actively involved. Then there's passive complicity that would be like omissionary sin. So it's a word in an English language that when we're speaking about it or when I have spoken about it, I'm speaking it about it in both categories, both active and passive, especially as it relates to the calling specifically in the church. So I, as I enter into this, what I would say um, when we speak about indifferent historically, again, the letter to the Birmingham jail is an incredible example. And when you study history through the racial dynamics inside the United States and the church's role within it, um, there is very clear active uh, participation in perpetuating, that's a word that was used in a previous point, perpetuating and defending things like um, chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws, uh, fighting against the civil rights laws very actively. Um, it's been said many times that the bayonet, if you will, or the laws of the land could force the integration of the University of Alabama or other schools, but it never approached the church. So the church just lived out what it was um, in particular. And so in that, when indifferent is used in the best case scenario of that word, indifferent just means we look at the plight. It's exactly like it says, um, have we been callous to the experience of our non-white neighbors, including brothers and sisters in Christ, when they're communicating for literal centuries inside of our country and even very recently communicating their pain relative to our indifference. At the very least, we have to reckon with that of why haven't we stepped in and spoken about these things? Why haven't we, when we step in and speak about them, there's such a dramatic resistance, maybe because um, we haven't used our words wisely. Um, but when we look back, we go, what really is that? And saying the church shouldn't be seemingly in these areas if we believe every nation, tribe, and tongue has been created by God. Acts 17, when Paul's sitting at Mars Hill and he says, from one, God created all the peoples of mankind, all the ethnicities. Well, if that's true and we believe they're all dignified, the very first point that we made and made in the image of God, we should be at the forefront of fighting for justice for all these people. We should be at the forefront of saying all men are created equal and we do it. And this is a recognition ultimately that we haven't been. One thing I would say in this is, this is stated that many white Christians, I would say what's really important also to think about this is the collective nature of the church, not just individual Christians, but this sense of, and we've said this previously in the doc document, that these problems can't be defined just in individualistic categories. If that's true, that the problems can't be defined just in individualistic categories, the solutions can't be either. So at some point, we need to take collective responsibility as the church for where we haven't stepped into these issues. So it may not just be many individual Christians haven't, but we as churches have not. So even when we did the video, it was a recognition of both of those dynamics. There are explicitly racist people in our mix, but also we have not collectively as a church, Redemption Church, done what we feel we should do mm. in stepping in this, and we've been indifferent. So what's hard about that articulation is when we did say it, when we have said it, and maybe are saying it and will say it, many people only understand that as I'm saying you're, 
explicitly indifferent. And I think that's where we go. We're not saying every single person because there's always exceptions to the rule and maybe even the rules more complex than we may understand it. But we're saying as a church historically in this vein of tradition, we have been complicit actively and we've been complicit passively in the sense of not leading the way, being a witness the way God calls us to be a witness. When you think about the idea of indifferent, um, sometimes it could mean uh, you just don't care at all. And sometimes it could mean you just care less than you should. You know, that it's kind of, yeah, it's mediocre. Yeah, it's, you know, and and you care less than you would if it was happening to you. <laughs> and I think that's a key thing because, and I just, I just can't say this strong enough. The goal as we follow Jesus is not, it's not enough to say my goal is to be not racist. The goal is to be loving. <laughs> And love tries to move in and feel what people are feeling and act like you would act if it was happening to you. And that's really hard. I mean, if we're just super honest, because it feels in our world like there's just a million things to care about. And that's why proximity is so important is because as we get closer to people who are experiencing some of these things, um, even when we're not, um, it just becomes that much harder to sit on the sidelines and say, well... Yeah, that, boy, that must be too bad. Stay warm and well-fed. You know, we don't want to do that. And so I think the danger would be some people might hear us say um, indifferent and say, you haven't done anything. And that's not what we're saying. There's been lots of generosity. There's, I think, in lots of people who love the Lord, a desire for greater rec- racial reconciliation. But it might be a way of saying, but have you done what you would do if it was happening to you? Which is very interesting. So... I'll say to everybody listening and maybe everybody at the table, brace yourself here because this is uh, something I've experienced in conversations with people that prove your point is you wouldn't want this done to you. And so in the current climate and context, one of the greatest fears of what's happening and because we don't have better terminology, we say on the extreme left is a concern amongst many quote unquote white people that my fear is I'm never going to be able to get a job. My fear is that my white sons are going to be oppressed. My fear is they'll never have a place in society. Yeah, I I have plenty of people I've talked to have said, you know, I'm in corporate America. I'm a white male. And I realize that white males have had it good for a long time. I don't have it good. I'm the last guy in line for a promotion. That doesn't feel fair. That kind of thing. Yeah, so your, your concern ultimately is that a system is being built that itself you're never going to be able to get out under and you're going to be oppressed. Now, what if there are large groups in our history, which is we're affirming in this document, that that's been true of? So now what you're evidencing at that point is your point, Luke, you just made. I don't want that to happen to me. Right. Well, the gospel and obedience to the gospel, which is the phraseology Paul uses in Romans, and when you brought up in 1 Peter 4, judgment begins with the household of God. How much more for you, Peter says, and you will be judged based upon, did you obey the gospel of God? Well, the nature of the gospel is this other's orientation to where you're saying, I'm willing to be disadvantaged so that you can get an advantage. Mm. Um, And so that, to me, is a massive point to make, is to say, what we fear would be happening, what if it is happening in another person? Hmm. So the nature of the gospel is not me first. Right. It's others first. Yeah, that's great. One thing that I would even just say that's just making me, I would say, fidgety 
in this kind of conversation moment is this disproportionate responsibility that the pastors and elders have over the church, hmm. right? Like the what do you mean? Well, I mean you you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, and it's like Ezekiel thirty four, the shepherds, the bad shepherds, hmm. right? I as a pastor feel disproport like you're saying we haven't done this. The church has we collectively, like well the collective we very often is a product of criticism of the clergy of the pastors and the letter to Birmingham jail letter from Birmingham jail is mostly critical, not of white people generally, but white pastors generally. And so even the three of us sitting here talking about this, I do think that there is a, uh, not many of you should be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly is not just that your teaching will be judged, but there is like a, a, a complicity there yeah. that I think, especially as pastors and elders from redemption are listening in that I myself am feeling that there's more of a responsibility. I think the leaders bear on the passiveness than even that the sheep bears and that, that responsibility gap. Hmm. I, I just feel nervous. It's, it's funny as you say that, because when I think about the video that, that Tyler um, was on that, you know, all of redemption put out that, that, that eight minute video following uh, the Ahmaud Arbery death, Part of the, one of the things that I heard was you, Tyler, in large part, taking responsibility that we as church leadership have been too indifferent, have been too slow, have been too uncaring. You know, I know you and I, I sense that you were take that, that was partly your way of taking ownership. That wasn't you trying to say, hey, you all stink. That was your way of saying, hey, we as leaders have not led into this the way that we have needed to. And we want to start doing that. And um, it was unfortunate that people didn't all hear it that way, but I, but I think that's kind of getting at what you're saying, Seth. Yeah, and that's what I mean. I, f- I just feel fidgety because I just think it's there's a trend that I just generally sense is like the gap between uh, very often clergy and congregation that I see is like nationally happening as I'm connected to pastors across the across America, and the, it's just really easy to lob grenades from pulpits, and it's really easy to be critical of your church. Yeah. And I just like, as a pastor don't want to not be implicated in criticisms that I have of my church because mm. I'm creating, I'm a part of creating it. Yeah. And so that's kind of what my people fidgety is. There's like a, I hope that if folks are listening and their pastors, elders, that there's a disproportionate weight, weight yeah. to press in and own. Mm. It's not good. just pointing fingers, yep. but, leading from the front. And that's something that I think, I don't know if a lot of people see you doing Tyler and you wouldn't say it, but I'd say it is I feel like you, you lead from the front on that. And I just don't see yeah. a lot of us doing that. Yeah. In general, as, as just a good leadership principle, I think I heard Craig Groeschel say this, that, you know, we should rarely say our people won't. We should more often say we haven't led our people to blank and even even the this document and this conversation is a way of saying this is a step we want to take to try to be helping lead lead our people so yeah and that's kind of my reason i this is kind of off this is 100 percent off script i guess you could say not that we have a script but i I don't say you gotta hand me the script i I haven't (laughs) i haven't had it yeah it's off the document but just i just don't want folks in our church to hear this and feel like the leaders are judging us Mm, yeah because i feel like more than anything i'm 
judging myself sure. and in trying to assess areas of where I'm not faithful. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move to the next section. So we looked at history, and then the next section is on our present reality. So where are we now? So number 14 says this, we affirm the complexity of society and that all social issues are multifaceted. We deny that all disparities among non-white and white people should be attributed to racism. I, I didn't check it. I think this might be the shortest one. I don't know if we'll have the shortest amount of comments on this, um, but what are we getting at here in this one, Seth? Well, there's a feeling and a concern that I think is legitimate is that, you know, I remember there is kind of like a, a wave of charismatic outbreak at one of my previous churches. And there was kind of became this, like there's a demon under every rock situation, you know, and you're like casting out demons out of, you know, my shoes untied. Well, the shoe demon got to it, you know? And <laughs> so you're just as there can be like a, there's racism under every rock hmm. and racism explains everything. And this is just saying that's too simple. We don't embrace a philosophy that would say that. Yeah. I think that racism and structural racism has, some explanatory power, but it does not have universal explanatory power. And there is, you know, article after article being written about how all these different things are racist. Uh, and some of them I just think are frankly funny. I saw one about how weight loss, desiring to lose weight is racist. And it just kind of feels like if, <laughs> like if everything's I'm, racist, if this was on racist. video, you'd see me rolling my eyes. I just kind of feel like, yeah. Hey, when we make everything racist, you end up like not being able to talk about the things that are really racist. Mm. And, and even this, there are certain critical race theorists, not necessarily all, but some of them who would say that attributing disparities between non-white and white people to anything besides racism is a form of perpetuating racism. And I think that's non-fair. I think there are many cultural idolatries, one of which is a form of racism. Yeah. Um, from the breakdown of the family system all the way back in Genesis 4 to varieties of, um, like we talked about hypersexualization, and you can't talk about this without talking about abortion. You can't talk that all of these things in many ways contribute to varieties of disproportionate impact and disproportionate disparity yeah. between people. And yeah. so it's not fair to universally uh, say racism explains all of that. Yeah, great. I think that's just a key phrase of all. And I'll just say this. The word multifaceted is very important if you understand multifaceted as interwoven or building upon each other. Yeah. Um, because it's at the same time, you don't want to go, it's multifaceted like a TV dinner. Here's this problem of sin. Here's this problem of sin. The reality is sins in the world and it weaves yeah. itself yeah, through it's, everything. It's a chicken pot pie. Not a TV dinner. So someone was, Chicken t someone was talking to me about how like they have a pool with a designated ping area. Yeah. <laughs> that works. <laughs> that works. Are you serious? That's what my kids. Well, they says. were joking. They were talking about. So they were talking about masks in restaurants. And oh. you, know, you you wear your mask in, and you take your mask off, and oh. it's kind of like the designated peering area of the pool. <laughs> and it's kind of like trying to talk about particular categories of sin. It's like uh, if your goal is analysis and trying to label things scientifically on which one is this one. Yeah it's pretty hard yeah. because at the, it's the whole world against yeah. the whole of Christ. And, and so there's a lot of yeah. layers there. Let's go to number 15. Number 15 says, we affirm that many black people and other people of color have more to overcome in order to succeed than many white people in part because of the legacy of unjust economic and social systems that have had lasting effects. We deny that people should resign themselves and not take responsibility for their lives. So, um, 
why is it important to affirm this? Like, I mean, this is kind of, we had the history before, okay, this is how it was. This is saying, no, this is still how it is that a lot of people, especially non-white people have more to overcome. Why do we, why do we need to say that? Is that just kind of fueling into a victim mentality? Um, why is it important to acknowledge? Well, I think it's, first you have to start with, well, I think it's helpful. I don't want to say you have to, but it's helpful to start with what does the Bible mean by justice? And what does the Bible mean by oppression? Do these things still exist? Um, are there still overlooked and marginalized people like the Bible speaks about, or did that all just go away in what we did? So then you get back to our history of saying there are three amazing civil rights laws on the books. The question is, have they been applied? Have they been driven through the warp and woof of society so that they're just on the books, but what does that ultimately look like? And I think this is a recognition of saying the history of the development of things that just are undeniable, slavery, um, Jim Crow laws, what led to civil rights is not that long ago. I mean, when you think yeah. about these things, and it didn't just go away. So right. if if I'm building upon generations of people who did work hard, had opportunities, built something I'm starting in a different place. I mean, the reality of my father being a baseball coach, very well-networked in Denver, Colorado, and him being having a lot of expertise in baseball made me a better baseball player yeah. that helped me get a scholarship to Arizona State University. Being at Arizona State University helped me to connect with a whole network of people that truthfully, even when I showed up at what's now Redemption Gilbert, I know some of the leaders at the time in the church took notice of me because I was the quote unquote captain of Arizona State University. That's not wrong. It's not sin. It's reality. But yeah. for me to not acknowledge that and to presume, hey, just a kid from some small town in Nebraska had every opportunity I had, that's not true. And I think this is what's very important is the Bible says for us to recognize this. So when it uses these terms that many of us are familiar with of to whom much is given, much is expected— uh, the reality of the parable of the talents, what's being spoken of there. When Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Don't boast. Is a, don't act like everybody has the same amounts. You're, you all will be held accountable to this. And this is a recognition based upon our history that not everybody does have the same thing. And I'm not saying that means everybody should have equal amounts of all of the same thing. That's sure. not even true in heaven, right? There'll be different rewards in heaven. Yeah. But there is a sense of equal opportunity or people would say equity in the midst of this, that we're recognizing in this statement isn't true based upon our history and how sin has manifested itself in our history. Yeah. It, it seems like the denial there is significant. You know, I know that um, there's a there's a desire. I mean, I think what we want to say is some people have it really tough, and we should, in love, acknowledge that and try to see that and try to empathize and enter into that. At the same time, um, people are working really hard to do their best and to succeed and to thrive and um and that's a good thing too right it's not and i think i think in the world it, it's got to be all or nothing again you know either you're just a victim and you just need to work hard you know or, or you just need to work harder right and, and we we go back and forth on that one recommendation i'd make too on this is um phil visher who had um kind of done all the veggie tail stuff he's had a number of videos that he's put out related to race and you may or may not agree with all of the like conclusions or recommendations from a policy perspective that he lands on. Um, but I think in terms of tracing some of this history 
and some of the um, some some of what's kind of getting into this, I, I found that to be very helpful. Yeah, there's there's two real major schools of thought. I think I think the guy's name is Glenn Lowry. I'm not totally sure, but he's a pr- distinguished tenured professor at Brown, um, African American guy. He talks about trying to talk process through the lack of equal opportunity or even the lack of equal, um, how that kind of plays out. He talks about the, the bias school versus the development school. Hmm. And how the bias school wants to explain most of uh, the lack of opportunity to the bias and people of power, Okay, right? And you do see sociological studies that verify some of this. You know, um, people with traditionally white-sounding names with the same resume as a resume, you just change the name on it. Someone with like a traditionally black sounding name, the white name gets more calls. Hmm. Uh, and so that's just one, one small example. Um, so there's, a, there is a de- element of the bias narrative that even if you try to reduce some of this to class, the fact that, you know, a lot of folk times um, blackness or black skin gets associated with poverty hmm. um, because of the lasting. So even like we talk about here, the legacy of unjust economic and social systems that, because of the lack of transitional justice, especially in the post-Jim Crow era, there is associations that are per- 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 perpetuated because of the disproportionate amount of people who end up being in poverty. So, so like that's like the bias side of it. Mm. Um, or you can talk about implicit bias, but just this whole reality that we like people who are like us. Yeah, I like watching Steelers games with Steelers fans. <laughs> I don't like watching Steelers games with Cowboys fans, right? Because they're less moral. <laughs> no, but but I just there's just a it's easier socially to be with people who are like us. Sure, um, and I think that's true whether you're talking about dinner with an LDS person or dinner with someone who's like really into um, bat gammon and you've never <laughs> played before, and yeah. you're like, well, this is boring because I don't care about bat gammon. And so there's a, a so that that kind of bias narrative is not just a racial narrative, but it's also just the people who are like me. Okay, so there's the bias narrative, and then what does he talk? about? The other about one's the developmental the narrative, which is like. A, um, so what he talks about is the lack of fathers, the non-parenting, the worst schools, which even the worst schools is again like a legacy of these economic and social systems and the way that these things are funded and whatnot. And he's kind of going that traditional leftists want to talk about how the bias narrative explains everything and traditional conservatives want to talk about how the development narrative explains everything. And he's kind of saying there's, Back to number 14, it's multifaceted. Yeah, yeah, it's multifaceted. And I think even Tyler's point, like Isaiah 117, which is one I tend to go to, um, he's talking about um, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Um, it's, it's inarguable that certain communities have different levels of fatherlessness and different levels of incarcerated men proportionality-wise. And part of what the prophet Isaiah is saying, so God is saying, is that doing justice, correcting oppression has something to do with fatherlessness and something to do with widows. Hmm. And that really um, has a lot to do with what we're talking about there. Yeah. I'll just say this because I want to make this explicit too in the denial. You spoke to it directly, Luke, but I want to say it again. The Bible really confirms no matter what situation you find yourself under, which would include oppression, is keep doing what God's called you to do. Yeah. So it isn't that the idea you could be a victim, right? You could be a victim in multiple different ways in multiple different categories. That never excuses you from 
being who God has called you to be as a follower of Jesus. We follow Jesus no matter the circumstances. So this is the power of even the love your enemies or the power in this conversation, the power of so much of the civil rights movement, not all of it, but so much of the civil rights movement, it was fueled by a Christocentric vision mm. of nonviolence, of doing well to neighbor, even at the point where they fought uh, Martin Luther King Jr., influenced by many other thinkers, um, not the least of Howard Thurman, but was saying it isn't loving to allow the oppressor to stay in an oppressive state. Mm. That actually, that idea of being oppressive to someone actually is a distortion of the image of God, of being made in the image of God who is a giver, is you become a taker. Pharaoh's a great example of this in Egypt, is those moments weren't just for the liberation of the Israelites, but for the liberation of Egypt and Pharaoh himself. Yeah, and describing someone as a victim and asking them to adopt like a victim mentality or identity, uh, so-called, is also equally non-loving, right? That's that form of... So you mean victim as like an overriding identity, right? It's, yeah. it's not wrong to say, hey, in this situation, you were a victim. Yes, yeah, thanks for helping me clarify. Yeah, someone could be legitimately victimized, legitimately be a victim. Um, and so even so, talking to some of my non-white friends, one of their concerns is how some of this stuff could descends into like a form of being patronizing. Hmm. Like you could never overcome any of this. You should just sit back. And uh, in contrast with the Bible teaches, like it, that there's capacity for humans to subdue and have dominion, mm-hmm. right? You know, like the way the Proverbs calls people to productivity. And so uh, the, the dignity, like this, like there's a whole, a whole book about the kind of like when helping hurts, yeah. or if you like swoop in and just try to, uh, you're not giving people the ability to take responsibility or indignity work for things. That's also non-loving and it, and it, you know, truncates their efficacy in the middle of uh, strenuous situations. I want to say one thing because you just made me think of it, but I've said before, and some people have heard me say this, that at times I've looked at the historic black church, and I would say the same thing with other, whether Native Americans or Hispanics, but in this category, the historic black church, and I've said, you are going to have to lead us. Yeah. And it's primarily because they're overcomers. Because yeah. as I look I at, just thinking a similar thing. because they're overcomers, I look at our future as Christians inside this country, and I think it's not going to be as easy as it's been in the past. Yeah. We are no longer going to become a, be a dominant force. We're going to be a subdominant force. And playing into the narrative that we spoke about in dominant, subdominant categories, not to play into like everything can be defined as oppressed and oppressor, but the nature of what sin does is focus on itself. And when it focuses on itself, it will keep other people down. And so there is a future, I think, coming where things are much harder, maybe really, really, really hard for Christians. And many of us who are living have never experienced that. We don't really know what it is to have the grit that people would say today to be an overcomer. We don't have the experience of it. Now, I'm not saying, again, every individual. I'm not saying that. There are people who've overcome tremendous amounts of things. But when you look at a community who've continued to overcome, I've had black friends of mine say, you want to know what a miracle is? Uh, what a miracle is, is that blacks believe in Jesus at all, given the reality of how they've been treated throughout history and or throughout the world. Yeah. And that's a really interesting statement. You could agree with or disagree with, but it's a, it's something to commend their faithfulness to Jesus and how Jesus has showed up to them in extraordinarily real ways, not because of the greatness of themselves, but the faithfulness of God to hear the cries of the oppressed. Yeah, such resilience to learn from. All right, let's go to number 16. It says, we affirm 
and grieve the pain experienced by many minorities that springs from being underrepresented in leadership, from being experienced as other, from ongoing suffering within racist environments, and from, from stereotyping and profiling. We deny that every single negative interaction between white people and non-white people should be attributed to racism. So you kind of hit on this already earlier, Seth, just talking about we don't want racism under every rock, right? Not every interaction. I think this is one of the things that's that's challenging, especially as situations happen in our culture related to police, is there is a tendency that if something happens between a white police officer and a black uh, victim, it's inherently thought to be racist. Um, yeah, that's one of the frustrating things about a media-shaped narrative is that racism get clicks, gets clicks. And so maybe right. it was racism. But we even talk about the danger of impugning motive all the time. Like yeah. you don't know it's another person's heart. And so I just want that to be a legitimate category. And even though certain things may feel representative or like they're part of a larger pattern, which is um, oftentimes true, it's we should be careful about thinking we know people's hearts. Yeah. So not every negative interaction between white and non-white people is racist. At the same time, what we're affirming here is saying there is a lot of pain experienced by many minorities. And I think a pain that especially I would say for a, a lot of white folks, I, I'll just, I'll say for me, there's a pain that I, I don't know about as much and I have to ask a lot of questions and I have to listen to a lot of stories. Um, and it comes from all these different things being underrepresented in leadership, right? It's, it's challenging sometimes if you're in an environment and you're the only one that looks like you and there's no one in leadership that looks like you. And I've heard people talk about just the, you know, um, just how I, we had a conversation with a woman in our church the other day that there was a particular TV show that she really liked because she said, this is someone who looks like me. <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of our elders here at Gateway, um, who's Chinese, he took all of us as elders to um, that movie a few years ago, Crazy Rich Asians, because he said, this is a positive view of Asians in a movie and you don't see this very often and you don't see Asian bodies very often. And it was incredible how moving that was to him. And I was moved by how moved that moved he was by that. And I needed to learn that. And so, so that'd be an example. There's the being experienced as other. Well, can I, can I add one more thing before you go on that? Sure. I think especially you talked about not understanding what that is like, um, by analogy, I think there's a reason why Christians get really excited when they find out some certain celebrities are Christian right because like it feels like it feels like nobody in hollywood's a christian and then all of a sudden kanye is a christian and it's exciting and justin bieber's a christian and it's exciting and that chris pratt right is a christian and he gets maligned for his christianity and it's exciting because you feel represented in hollywood in a place where you don't we aren't represented yeah I'm and, just- Chris Pratt just makes me laugh. That's why I'm smiling. <laughs> yeah, Chris Pratt. You're picturing Andy. Uh, I am. What's his name? I, Andy what? I just thought of Chris Pratt's face that I laughed. You know, but. Andy Dwyer. That's yeah, right. so, so it's not the you same. You watch that, I don't. But that, that language of representation. It's really funny. You should watch it, Tyler. Get through the first season. The first season's garbage. And then after that, Parks and Rec is just dynamite. Sorry. Seth's making a very serious point, but he lost us. I was trying to help us relate to people who are different than us. And, uh, yeah, but just by way of example of representation, I think, I think many white Christians can connect with that reality. Like, why do we get so excited about uh, finding out certain celebrities are Christians? And like, why is why do so many people love Tim Tebow even though he's like a mediocre quarterback? Yeah. Uh, for a long time, and it's like, well, because he's like me. Yeah. And a lot of those people are not like me. Yep. And so I think there's not the same, but by way of analogy, closer than we get otherwise. 
And I think the reason you like people that are likely you is because they can identify with you and they see from the perspective you see, which means they see the problems that you see. Yeah, so they this get is me. why they get me. They understand me. Yeah. This is why that act six passage mm. is such an interesting passage when, and I've used this um, many times long before the last six to seven months of social unrest in the ways in which we've addressed it, but I've used it to say, when there are these widows who are not being cared for, that are Hellenist Jews, but the Hebrew widows are being cared for, the Hellenist widows are not, the first thing you have to ask is why? Hmm. Like something's happening here. Is it explicit? Is it implicit? I don't know, but something's happening. When they seek to answer it, what's undeniable is the seven men that are chosen all have Greek names. Right which most people would say they're likely from the Hellenistic wing of Judaism. Now, not necessarily, not for sure, but you go, they all have Greek names. What's happening there? Well, there's a real possibility, maybe a likely, a real likelihood that what they were doing is going, clearly this problem was happening because we didn't see it. Mm. So in order to fix it, we're going to put seven people who do see it better than we see it here. And that's where it gets into leadership representation isn't just a quota it's in order to see clearly and to see correctly current situations that aren't seen accurately by just the same types of people in the same room making all the decisions. Yeah. And one of the things I love about that Acts 6 passage is it's like we're talking about a brand new church and pretty early on in the book of Acts, they swing and a miss on like basics. Mm. And it's, recorded by Luke in scripture. Yeah, you know, people go, I want to I want to be like the early church. Yeah, they're not thinking that passage. I'm not thinking Acts 6. I'd really like to overlook ethnic minority widows. That's not what they're thinking. But there's just a no attempt at concealing the sins of the early church. And I just think that's a like the security of that, like because our identity is in grace, we don't have to overlook or pretend or whitewash. Um, whitewash tombs, I mean. Yeah, so that's really good. I know the white word yeah. in this context can be confusing. So, yeah, and, and we just want to say here that um, we want to be empathetic to the experiences of people. We want to try to put ourselves in one another's shoes. We want to try to love one another well. And so we do affirm and grieve uh, that pain where it happens. So let's move to this last section, which is on our responsibility. So this is a little bit of a, okay, we've looked at the history. We've looked at some of the present dynamics. Uh, where are we headed? What are we responsible for? Kind of, so what? Where does this go? So number 17 says this, we affirm the Christian responsibility to pursue the welfare of our neighbors and our cities through means like evangelism, relationships, truth-telling, protesting, and legislative action in line with the Lordship of Jesus. We deny that rioting and looting are legitimate means of justice. Uh, That denial uh, seems, I think, very, uh, we kind of know where that's coming from here as we record it toward the end of 2020. We've seen a lot of rioting, a lot of looting, a lot of destruction. Uh, we want to say that um, that is not a means of justice that we want to pursue that we think honors the Lord. But we do want to pursue the welfare of our neighbors through lots of other means, right? So you list a, we list a bunch of different things there, evangelism, relationships, truth-telling, protesting, legislative action. That's not an exhaustive list. There are probably more things we could add to that list, nor is that a list that every Christian should be doing all of those all the time, um, but that there are these means through which we pursue the welfare of our neighbors and our cities. And, and man, one of the things I like about this in 17 is it's not just saying we have a response to pursue the welfare of our Christian neighbors, of our, but of our neighbors, 
in our cities and where there is injustice and sin. Um, we want to try to push back against it in the power of the Spirit. Yeah, I'll say something just briefly. The We affirm all neighbors and our Christian neighbors. And when the Bible speaks, it speaks in a proximity principle of kind of deal with your own self, deal with your own home, deal with the church that you're involved in, and then go out. So he says, especially those of the household of faith. And I think a lot of times in this argument, people go, especially means pretty much only where you go. That is not at all what he says. He says, care for all people, but follow this pattern of proximity is that we don't want to go out there and care about the needs out there while neglecting the needs inside our own home. This is the logic of leaders is that if you can't care for your own household, how can you care for the household of faith? Um, so that is very true. And then I just want to make a, a point on the multidimensional nature of our care. So evangelism, I mean, you could add, and you said this, Luke, but you could add education, investment, business, all to these aspects of what it means to love, but we're saying this is Christian responsibility. Yeah, great. Let's go to 18. 18 says, we affirm God's care of, love for, and patience with all people, and that his preeminent vehicle of sharing that loving kindness is through his spirit-filled people. We deny passive visions of Christianity that abdicate responsibility delegated to us by God. So I guess the way I would try to paraphrase this in my own uh, my own words would be that the church, the people of God, the, the spirit-filled people, are God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Um, we're the plan A to be a blessing, to share the gospel, to push back against the effects of the fall, um, to show the loving kindness and patience and care of God. The way God is going to love the world is through us, his body. And I think what's great in that is the we doesn't mean every individual has to do all the things in the previous point. Yeah. It means we as the church understand there are ways we all get engaged that allow us to focus, not compromise our physical health or our families, but we really do affirm God's care for and the means in which he does it is through the church. Yeah, and even reducing that responsibility to just evangelism, it's like we just talked about how a whole bunch of people were evangelized and were followers of Jesus, and that didn't do the trick. Yeah. Right? There's there's a lack of conformity to the vision given in Scripture, and so the breadth of responsibility is important as well, even as it comes to calling one other Christians towards faithfulness. Which I just want to say this, because this is many leaders will be listening to this. That really gets into the question of what is evangelism biblically anyways? It's gospeling somebody, and gospeling them happens in multidimensional form. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of, you could argue, and many Christian faith traditions do argue, all those things encompass evangelism, the nature of this. So um, the, the declaration of the gospel and the display of the gospel. Yeah. All right, number 19. We affirm the ability and need to acknowledge, lament, confess, and intentionally depart from the trajectory of sins of commission and omission in our church's legacy. We deny that such collective lament and confession directly implicates every believer's soul in the sin of racism, both now or in the past. So we, we touched on that denial a bit as well. I think one of the things I take away from, from number 19 is that the only way that we're going to be able to acknowledge, lament, confess, or intentionally depart is if we're open to uh, examination by the Spirit, right? If if our flinch is we've got to be defensive and we've got to prove to ourselves and others that we're in no way implicated by anything, we are going to miss the opportunity for the Lord to search us and know us 
and then be able to do these, these things. You mentioned uh, illustration earlier of George Whitfield. Will I be held accountable in the end for George Whitfield's sin? And I want to state, just like you did, adamantly no. But what I am accountable for is the pass down of that legacy and how I respond to it now. So what's happening now? So it, it is an example. If I grew up in a home with angry men consistently and I have a propensity to anger, I can say, well, that's just in my family line. It's what I do. Well, the nature of a spirit-filled Christian has the responsibility to go, no, it stops here. And oftentimes we're experts in looking at other communities or other people's continuation of what may be called generational sin. But we really miss the log in our own eye of we have those same things. And this is saying the church has those things that we're called now, not that we'll be held accountable for George Whitfield's sins, to use a example or metaphor, but that the effect of those now and how we take those up and continue to live in them in co-missionary or omissionary fashion, we are held accountable for. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's go to the last one, number 20. It says, we affirm that reconciliation with and forgiveness from Jesus leads to reconciliation with and forgiveness towards our fellow humanity. We deny that reconciliation is possible with God or humanity without confession, repentance, and in many instances, repair. And uh, man, I, I love how we started with the good news and we're finishing with the good news is that um, our hope for reconciliation, our hope for forgiveness before God and with other people is in Jesus. He, he is our only hope. And um, a lot of people can strive to have reconciliation and even do uh, you know, good things as it relates to common grace, but it, it just ultimately isn't going to happen without the forgiveness and grace and strength of God. Yeah, the security that a grace identity gives you is in many ways what gives you the capacity to forgive and be forgiven and to confess and be confessed to. And it's just like critical that we recognize that I do think that when you know you're loved by God and that your sins are atoned for by Jesus, there's nothing at risk in owning up to them. Yeah. Both commission, omission, conscious, unconscious, that, you know, worst case scenario, I go a little bit understood for a little while. But generally speaking, uh, searching out my own sin, my own passiveness, even the sins of my family is not something that I need to be afraid of. Yeah. And so that's why I think reconciliation with Jesus can lead to reconciliation and forgiveness with others is because it creates a spine that is, uh, gives me the courage to enter into that without trying to prove myself or without trying to make others prove themselves. Yeah. That's great. I want, I want to, um, I do want to zoom in on one particular word though, that I think, may not be intuitive to everybody who we're trying to shepherd through this stuff, which is that last word of the denial, which is the word repair. We deny that reconciliation is possible with God or with humanity without confession, repentance, and in many instances, repair. I think a lot of Christians would sort of go, wait a minute. If we confess our sins to God and to someone else, and if we repent and we ask for forgiveness, shouldn't that be enough Right. If you now say, well, I have to also do things to repair it, aren't you kind of adding works to this? Um, what do we mean by repair? Well, it's a misunderstanding of repentance, to be totally honest. And we have to understand that repentance is not uh, just a confession. It, repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is actually a change of heart, a change of direction. 
And so, like I was talking with a guy today, I keep coming back to these marriage examples because that's fresh in my mind, who was kind of talking about, I kept repenting, but then I kept apologizing, and I realized, maybe I'm not repenting. Mm, yeah. Because I keep having to apologize. Yeah. And he's realizing that I have to change what I've been doing in order to repair the trust that I've lost with my wife. So I need to start being different in order to repair the relationship. Yeah. And he's saying, and this is, I think, a healthy acknowledgement that this recognition that love does overlook a multitude of sins. Uh, but there is a threshold there that I think we need to be honest about that at some point we need to see change in order for there to be a relationship and for there to be trust. Yeah. And this real transformative repentance that's not just confession, but it's actually rooted in change. And so I think we understand that relationships. Yeah. I can keep saying sorry, but if I keep punching you in the face, eventually you're going to stop believing me. Here's a short, um, hopefully in a nutshell, two-passage view of repentance the way Seth was just speaking about it. So in 2 Corinthians 7, he speaks, and he'd been confronting the church in Corinth, and he says, yet now I am happy not, so Paul is happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow has led you to repentance. Mm. And so this idea of like, hey, I'm sorry for that is not enough. Change is necessitated. Now that adds the question to the next passage is what is change? And we have been taught uh, recently by Chris Moles, and he says he loves the idea of repentance coming from Ephesians 4.28. And in that passage, it says, let the thief no longer steal. So you stop doing what you were doing that was bad. You're stopping commissionary sins, but rather let him labor. You get to work doing honest work with his own hands so that he have, may have something to share with anyone in need. Mm. So the, the idea and the evidence of real repentance is change that leads to an other's orientation in helping them specifically is the way you show that you're no longer a thief. It isn't just done by stopping stealing, mm. but it's by getting to work and be, having something to share. So in this category, if we recognize all that we've recognized already in this document, it isn't enough to be sorry. And what change would mean is that we actually get involved and start doing something. And the word we use here is to repair the situation. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of, of Luke 3, where John the Baptist is preaching, and he tells everybody, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And they say, well, what should we do? And he says, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors go, what do we do? He says, don't collect more than you owe or than people owe you. The soldiers, what should we do? Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. So the idea that repentance would just be uh, just saying sorry, that, that, isn't, that isn't repentance. That's kind of what we're all saying. But Yeah, I, I'm just like would love to hear from you, Tyler, on how you see this playing out for Redemption Church. Arizona. We talk about disproportionate impact. We talk about the lack of investment. I've even heard the phrase that there seems to be these God forsaken areas or communities. Can you kind of like, yeah, what would it look like for us to collectively try to repair? Even we talked about the disproportionate responsibility of leaders. I would love to hear how you think about that and kind of from your heart, like a positive vision for redemption church. Yeah, this is where I get really excited because of the commitment inside of redemption. But I have a really good friend of mine who's a really good friend of redemption named Oye Waddell, and he started a nonprofit organization called Hustle Phoenix, and it's called Hustling for the Common Good is the tagline. And they essentially try to bring into urban communities that oftentimes are wrought with crime where people are using God-given abilities and God-given gifts at many times to 
carry out illegal criminal activity. And he said, I want to give those same people within their design of God opportunities to access three forms of capital. So intellectual capital that they typically don't get. They don't get taught great business principles. Uh, They don't have access to the opportunities that many other people in other communities have to. So intellectual capital, relational capital. They don't have the networks to people that if they decided to start a business that they could get, you know, angel funding or seed funding, you know, they call it in entrepreneurship, the venture capital world, series one, series two, series three money. They don't have access to that because they don't have relational capital. And then the last one is financial capital. So taking that inside redemption, we have done things. So we've started um, programs of discipleship and higher levels of theological education where we're trying in those programs to provide access to intellectual capital to people who may otherwise not have gotten it. Uh, when it comes to relational capital, the project of redemption itself is trying to give us all relational capital and relational proximity with communities we wouldn't otherwise have known. And out of that, this phrase that has come up that was actually in a book, this idea of there are no God-forsaken communities, there's just church-forsaken communities. And the fact of the matter is, is inside when new church starts or church plants, it's called, are happening most of the time in those environments, we think with a far more free market, a current free market, that's very important, current, almost like crony capitalism, free market mentality that sells, if this is not sustainable, if it can't support itself, and we define sustainability a certain way, that essentially nobody wants to start churches in urban communities, and they don't have the access to those forms of capital that we may have just mentioned, and they're brilliant people with extraordinary gifts, or they say, I'd have to give, sacrifice my family on the altar of doing this. I'm just unwilling to do it. So what would it look like for us to step in? And one of the things we're working towards inside Redemption is that we would pod congregations inside Redemption in a three-to-one model. So there'd be two congregations that can really, I'm sorry, three congregations that can really do their ministry actively, have people that are able to give at levels of substantial that would allow us to really resource um, amazing leaders inside these environments to have access to capital that they may not otherwise have. And that isn't just to say, man, that's what we can do for them. But what it does for the other Mm. three is puts them in proximity and leverages the power of their leadership, their experience and their expertise to influence all of us overall. And it it puts positive restraints upon us to not just go out and say, hey, we can start churches in the places that are easier to, to start churches, but how do we think through this? And I think that's that type of a model that we didn't have as articulated is what has got us to a point because of the proximity to even care about the issues and see the issues the way we have already. Yeah. And that's so mutually beneficial because obviously the churches and the leaders and and more under-resourced and unlikely to be, um, you know, financially self-sustaining, there's help they receive. Um, there's also just this reality and, and we could do a whole different conversation on this, um, that you really can't see Jesus fully unless you see the poor, unless you see the uh, those who are often overlooked, those who are often on the margins, right? We, we've talked about this at pastor's meetings and other things where, you know, even if you just look at Jesus in the Gospels, who do you have to get through to get to Jesus? You have to get through the poor. Around Jesus, usually on the edges are the powerful and the elite, and you kind of have to get 
that you you gotta get through the poor and the vulnerable to get to Jesus. And so I feel like as, as someone who's pastoring in a, in a very financially well-off place, um, I mean, that's really great. And I think it's cool that, you know, gateway could be part of helping resource under resourced churches. But, um, I don't want to be so spiritually poor as a result of not having proximity to the financially poor and, and, and poor in other ways. I think what's astounding about that vision that we shared at pastor meetings that many of us I use a lot is that actually came, I mean, verbatim from being in covenant relationship, not just financial giving relationship. We didn't just give, but inside redemption, we're in covenant relationship with West Mesa, with Alhambra, with other parts of other congregations. And they were the ones who brought up and continued to make all of us go, look at Jesus in the Gospels. Yeah. You don't get to Jesus in the Gospels, but through those who are overlooked, marginalized, hurting, sick, wounded, many times at the hands of other people and the poor. And you start going, man, you're reading the Gospels going, this is just true. So now if we stand in Jesus and look out, who do you see first? Them. Yeah. So there is this notion. And I remember early on these friends of mine saying to me, Jesus prioritizes the poor. And I remember like struggling a bit with that. Like, mm. I don't know prioritizes like he also cares for Simon the Pharisee he cares for um yeah, he loves everybody Zacchaeus he loves everybody but then this moment it, when it came to me through other people saying he prioritizes them cuz nobody else does mm. it is this idea that we should love all people and love all people equally but the issue of overlooked and the marginalized is because they are so in society consistently throughout history not seen He's saying we must prioritize them, see those who are unseen. Yeah. So you think about this in Mark, the man with the withered hand. He doesn't just heal the man with the withered hand in a corner. He stands him up so everybody can see him. Mm. And in that, he's loving both the man, you who haven't been seen or being seen, but he's loving them by forcing them to see him. Yeah, and you can just imagine the people looking away and Jesus saying, no, you're not going to look away. You're, you're going to keep looking. So Tyler, I have, um, I have a... One one more question for you, and then I have an exhortation for the folks who are listening. So the question for you is, as we've just spent the last three hours going through this document, um, does this represent some new direction for us? Are we going in a new direction? I would say absolutely not. Um, even in the video that we mentioned, this has always been a value for us. It's just trying to turn an aspirational value into an actual value. Mm. And I do want to say when we speak in we, there are people inside redemption and full-fledged churches inside redemption that have been committed to this for decades. And I would say we, wholesale, all of us, have all been committed to it as a value. It's just some of us have already made it an actual value. Others of us are turning an aspiration into actuality and trying to learn what that means in our current context. But it absolutely is not a new direction yeah. that we decided to turn a different way. It's, I think, us fulfilling a vision we've had from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't mean that every congregation is going to look the same, absolutely right? Congregations not. in certain communities are probably still going to look a lot like those communities, but hopefully with a with a different spiritual temperature, a different sensibility, a different, um, you know, a s sense of how to love our neighbors well through it. So 
Can I say one more thing just on that? As Because this is leaders looking at this, the biggest plea I would have to individuals and to churches who listen to this is to put yourself intentionally in proximity, and that's relationships. So even in the future, all of our congregations will not look the same, but I don't want any of our congregations just to feel confident in the money that they can give at a distance. Um, I have a friend of mine who we worked at a very large food bank, St. Mary's Food Bank, and he said, I served on the board there for seven years, and I never got to know a poor person. Mm. And he's like, that's disgusting. Like, Mm. I served on a board and thought I was serving, but I never got to know in proximity. And so I think that's the appeal of all of this is to say, let's get in proximity because it's beneficial to everybody. Yeah. So here's my exhortation. And man, if you've made it this far, way to go. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening to this. I, I hope it's been helpful. I also feel like it's just important for you to hear us say that this is not the final word on this. And our heart here is that uh, everything we've talked about hopefully helps you have better conversations with the people you're trying to shepherd and lead and encourage. Um, but we also want to be sharing ideas and sharing resources. And as you have conversations with folks, if there are things that you find helpful, if there are analogies, if there are illustrations, if there are uh, biblical paradigms that you think uh, others could learn from, please, please share those things. Um, and uh, man, we just, we're praying for you. This is a tough, contentious issue. Um, and we're trying to navigate it. You know, if we're just really honest to our context, we're trying to navigate it uh, in the heart of COVID with all the exhaustion that comes from that, the lack of proximity to people, um, a diminished trust, all the flammable stuff that the election of 2020 has been. And this is just a super, super hard time. Um, it's super hard time for everybody. And it's a really hard time to shepherd and to shepherd well. And um, and so um, we don't want this issue to um, make things necessarily harder for you, though we do kind of have to admit that if we're going to push into this at a conviction, that it's going to be painful and there's going to be cost. And, um, and, and we need to support each other and encourage each other and help each other um, to help bear one another up so that we can keep pursuing what God has for us, um, even in the midst of that pain. So um, just know that uh, you're not alone in it. You're not alone in the difficulty. You're not alone in the frustration, and um, we're not alone in what God wants to do in and through us here in Redemption. So thanks for listening, and uh, Tyler, thanks for all your time, man. Thank you. Seth, thanks thanks for a lot of your work on this document and uh, what you've added to the conversation. Appreciate you. You're welcome. And I think that's it. All right, y'all. Have a good one. <laughs>